Hi, I'm Dylan O'Keefe. You're listening to the Checkered Flag Chat, Bathurst 12-hour preview. The lead is clear. This is the fight for second, third and fourth. 16 minutes left in a 12-hour motor race. Here goes Matt Campbell. Had to commit. Got him. Campbell second. Porsche rejoice. The Aussie fans rejoice. Now he goes Aston Martin hunting. Bathurst 12 hour back in 2023. 26 cars will be on the grid this year. Not quite the halcyon days that we had pre-COVID, but definitely an improvement on last year. Joining me to discuss all of the form, all of the ins and outs of this year's Bathurst 12 hour, it's great to welcome along both Shane Jones and Dave Stilwell. We're going to have a three-person panel for this year's edition of the Bathurst 12 hour preview podcast. Hey guys, how's it going? Uh, good, good to be back and um, yeah, do a twelve-hour podcast. Usually, I'm on the one thousand podcast, but this time, uh, yeah, go for a little bit further distance and uh, yeah, preview the twelve hours. So looking forward to it. And uh, of course, great to be back with you, Lachlan, uh, on the Checkered Flag Chat uh, podcast series. Of course, great to have uh, a a full pro lineup, Bathurst twelve hours presented by Liquid Molly. Uh, back at Mount Panorama to kick off the 2023 Australian motorsport season. And just like a good Bathurst twelve-hour lineup. We've got a good strength of uh, three drivers, uh, one gold, one silver, one bronze. We'll let the viewers <laughs> figure out what our, what, our, what our rankings are. I've always said that if I was to be given an FIA driver ranking, it would be aluminium because I'm a lightweight. As opposed to me, I'd be lead because, you know, I, I'm heavy and uh, I, I'm always ballast in a race car. Jonesy, what would your driver ranking be, do you reckon? I'll just be in the invitational class, get the invite every now and again, and away I go. Yeah, love it. So, a few changes for this year's race compared to last year. We do have a return of the all-pro class. Last year, because of the fact that there were still a lot of travel restrictions and we couldn't really have many international teams coming to Australia to compete in the race, the organisers made the decision to make the top class pro-am. Uh, obviously, to encourage a lot of the local GT teams that rely on the the AM or the gentlemen drivers who own the cars to encourage them to compete and give them the opportunity to contend for outright victory. But a return to the all-pro class for this year. And one of the other rule changes is that we've abolished the compulsory pit stops. Last year, you'll remember that everybody had to make nine compulsory pit stops that rule has been abolished it's back to the more pure endurance racing strategy where it's you can make as many or as few pit stops as you need to to get to the end of the race as quickly as you can in relation to the compulsory pit stops well um it would be fine if 
if there are handicaps for, for different cars in the way that they use fuel and use tyres and those sort of things. But the reality is most of them are pretty close to each other. So um, I don't really mind it going. Uh, it, it opens the window up a lot more for strategy. You can now try and time when your last stop will be. You can try and rely on a safety car within the last hour. Um, there's multiple options for teams now to do rather than going, I guess, for the first 10 hours, just trying to get that compulsory pit stop window out of the way. As we saw last year, uh, one of the teams just decided to pit pretty much every opportunity they could and put themselves in a really good position to win the race through that. So I guess that was probably one of the reasons why the rule, I guess, disappeared because a lot of teams would have been abusing that rule to get the stops out of the way quickly and then move on. So I'm kind of glad it's gone. Um, it means that, yeah, the windows are more open for, for teams to, to to create their own strategies and to get to the end. And I think that's, that's what we all want. We all want in the last hour to have six, seven, eight, nine combinations within a really good chance of winning. And that's what we want. That's what we want to see. And if that means taking away the compulsory pit stop window is is a way to do that, well, then I'm all for it. A couple of rules that have been retained for this year that I want to get both your thoughts on. I'm going to start with qualifying. So last year, you'll recall that the top 10 shootout format changed. Rather than having the 10 cars that were fastest in qualifying going out and completing one flying lap each, they divided it up into a pair of 15-minute sessions. The first 15-minute session was from the cars from position 6 to 10, and the second 15-minute session was for the cars from positions 1 to 5. And the idea of that was that tyres for GT cars, unlike supercars, take a good couple of laps to get up to their optimum operating temperature. And because we had quite cold conditions last year, because you'll remember that the Bathurst 12-hour was ran was run in May rather than its traditional February date, the ambient and the track temperatures were a lot lower than what they would normally be. So just to give the teams and the drivers the opportunity to generate that tyre temperature to be able to punch out some fast lap times, that's why they changed the format and they've decided that it was a success. They've retained it for 2023. Dave, what do you reckon? Um, look, I'm a little bit ambivalent about this this year's event because we went through such a long period without having Australia's International Endurance Race and then to get last year's event, which was kind of the best of what we could put together when you're trying to throw an event that's normally held in February and May with the, ch- with the different weather conditions, the, d- the changes to the, the driver eligibility and what classes were eligible. I'm just really grateful to have the have the event back in something closely approximating the the ripper events we had in say 2018, 19, and 20 before the dreaded coronavirus reared its head and ruined uh, both everyone's lives and pre- substantial amounts of international motorsport lives. So, so you're going to sit on the fence and you're not going to express a strong opinion one way or the other about the top ten shootout then. Look, it's. The event needs to stand on its own. And again, if you speak to any of the people that go and attend and, and camp at the event or they, they do the they do the long tour, it's a very different vibe at the event. Even though it is run by the Supercars organisation, the history behind the event, the nature of the spectator, um, the knowledge base that exists within the, the spectator and the, the automotive enthusiasts that attend the event, it's a very different character to the Bathurst 1000. And I think on that basis, the organizer, organizers should be credited 
for coming up with something that gave the event something unique, a USP, if you will, about this particular event to separate it from the from the Bathurst 1000. Now, don't get me wrong, I am all about the you know the 60 minutes of television theatre that is a Bathurst 1000 shootout. But with the GT cars, as you explained, it takes two or three laps to get the Pirelli uh, hard compound tyre into the operating window. So if you want to see the cars doing the fastest ever laps, you kind of need to give them three three to five laps to do the fastest laps around here. Yeah, I agree with you on that. And I think that last year it worked really well because the lap times just kept getting quicker and quicker and quicker and it all built up to this climax, whereas you're right, because it does take time for the tyres to get up to temperature, one flying lap maybe doesn't build up to the kind of climax that we might see at a Bathurst 1000 top 10 shootout. Now, one of the rules that I want to get both your thoughts on is the safety car wave around rule, which was introduced last year. So the way it works is that from the beginning of the third hour of the race through to the end of the 11th hour of the race, any cars that are a lap down on the race leader when a safety car is deployed, uh, they will get waved past the safety car just prior to the safety car period ending and effectively, therefore, they will get a lap back on the race leader. Now, personal opinion, I'm going to sit on the fence a bit with this one because I can see the pros and the cons. On the pro side of things, Number one, it means that you're not going to have lapsed cars potentially getting mixed up in the battle between the outright leaders at a safety car restart. Number two, it means that cars get an opportunity if they've had some misfortune early in the race to get themselves back onto the lead lap, which means that in theory, we're going to have more cars on the lead lap fighting it out for victory at the end of the race. The downside though, and the question that I would pose to both of you should it be that easy to get yourself back onto the lead lap if you've had drama or should people who have had problems and who have fallen a lap or multiple laps down have to be forced to work hard and get those laps back? I'm going to throw it open to discussion to both of you, starting with you, Jonesy. So the first question that I have is with the lucky dog rule in both the Bathurst 1000 and the Bathurst 12 hour, has someone won the race? using that rule no so until that happens to me that this rule is almost null and, null and void in some respects because there has really been no combination in both of those races that have taken full advantage of it and gone on to win the race so last year the best place finisher in the 1000 or the Bathurst 1000 was Will Brown and Jack Perkins they ended up finishing 10th so my argument here with the lucky dog rule and it's always been since the day it's been introduced is that you've gone a lap down for a particular reason whether that's because one of the drivers in your team is not as fast as the other drivers or that you've had a mechanical issue or there's been an issue in pit lane or worst case scenario you've had to replace something significant in the car that's lost you a fair few laps nine times out of ten your car's not in a position to be competitive anyway so yes you might get your laps back but you're then at the back of the field still trying to beat the guys that have the best cars in the grid that haven't had any issues all day, have been really, really quick for most of the race and will probably still beat you in a head-to-head -head co uh, contest. So for me, the rule is great in relation to giving opportunities to people to get back into the race. And I think particularly in a 1,000 and a 12-hour, 
the more opportunities we get for more people to be in the contest at the end of the race, the better, as I said before, with the compulsory pit stop strategy. So for me, the rule is a good one by allowing entries to get back into the race and gain their laps and, and be within a chance of winning the race. But as history is proven to us already, using the lucky dog rule hasn't been a factor in deciding who wins the race. Nine times out of 10 or 10 times out of 10, it actually hasn't resulted in someone winning by getting a lucky dog um, going their way. So to me, until that happens, then that becomes a bigger talking point than what it is now. But until then, it's a great opportunity to provide more opportunities for drivers to get back into the race. But the reality is um, the, the best teams and the best drivers are still getting to the front and they're still winning the race. Dave, what do you reckon? Do you reckon the, the safety car wave around or the lucky dog rule as we describe it is good for the entertainment value and making sure that we've got the maximum number of cars on the lane lap fighting it out for victory at the end? Or is it a gimmick that takes away from the pure sporting competition element? You can please some of the people some of the time. All the Sorry, you can please some of the people all the time. You can please all the people some of the time, but you can't please all the people all the time. And herein lies the conundrum for our race organisers and the people that write the regulations. Yes, if you wanted a true sporting contest, no wave arounds, no benefits, no lucky dogs, no nothing, you would have instances like we had in the infamous Bathurst 1000, you know, the greatest race, the 2014 race, where Jamie Winkup was battling for the lead in the last laps after he'd had the car in the garage and gone a lap down, managed to race his way back into contention without any safety car help in terms of a, a wave around. Uh, that being said, this is a 12-hour race. The people that have, have attended and the people that are watching from home want to see as good a race as possible. Now, as a fan, I don't want someone to, you know, someone picks up a puncture from some debris at an inopportune moment, they limp the car back, put another tyre on it, get back out in the race, they go down a lap in, say, the second or third hour, and throughout the rest of the day, they just never get a chance to get it back. Someone like that, where absolutely no one's got a problem with them getting their lap back, brilliant. But then I can see the other side of the coin going, you know, should we let people pass that, you know, are going to become, you know, mobile chicanes again? And herein lies the problem with that is that, of course, they let the cars pass on the exit of Forest Elbow uh, on the on the lap just before they go back uh, back racing. So the cars that get that lucky dog don't get to catch back up to the back of the train. They only get a quarter of a lap, a third of a lap, if that, ahead of the field. You know, they're heading up Mountain Straight when the leading cars take the green flag across the control line. Um, you know, and of course, the, the teams that do get the wave around, it's not based on where you are in the safety car train before the restart. It's based on your position where you were when they called the safety car. So mm. it, it stops you from having that, oh, we're almost a lap down. Let's get our pit stop out of the way and then we'll get our lap back and it'll all be fine. You don't quite have that. You don't get that advantage uh, through the system. Again, probably something for discussion. Um, it is something that makes the, the event a bit more unique. Of course, uh, as we record this, we've got the IMSA WeatherTech series, the Daytona 20, the Rolex 24 at Daytona underway. And if you want to see a convoluted restart and pit stop procedure, tune into that race on IMSA TV because they've got five <laughs> classes, the GTP prototypes, LMP2s, LMP3s, GTD Pro, 
pro, pro GT3 cars and GTD and GT3 cars where they pit the pro, they get everyone in the line, they pit all the prototype cars, then they pit all the GT3 cars. So they're all lined up. So you've got prototypes in the front and the GT cars in the back. Uh, and then they do a wave around for anyone who's, who is in front of the class leader, but down a lap on them. So you end up with, <laughs> as I said, I have the, the race direction for that, that event. I, they have, they must have so many people just burning through abacus after abacus, figuring out who's meant to be in what position. Uh, but we like to keep things, okay, the racetrack's clear. Let's let the people through. Let's go back to racing. And, of course, yeah. kudos to all of the volunteer officials that have been working trackside to make that happen. Uh, James Taylor, the race director, and, of course, uh, Nick Hancock, uh, the clerk, of course, they work with an amazing group of Motorsport Australia volunteer officials, um, particularly the recovery officials who routinely get uh, pointed out as being some of the, the hardest working and, uh, and most efficient uh, in motorsport because they'll get a tractor out, they'll drag the thing trackside, they'll get it back underway uh, as soon as we can. There's not going to be any 25, 30-minute yellow flag periods for a, for a tyre wall that needs a little bit of a poke. Fully agree with you in terms of the excellent work of our volunteer officials here in Australia. And I think also, Dave, the point that you make about the fact that you get waves past the safety car on the exit of Forest Elbows, so you don't get your full lap back, you only get some of your lap back. And certainly if we've got pro and, and AM drivers on the track at the same time, if you're an AM driver who gets waved around the safety car, it's not going to be that long after the race restarts that you're going to have the pro drivers back on your tail and probably putting your lap down again anyway. So just because you get your lap back, it's not a fait accompli that you're necessarily going to stay on the lead lap for that long. Last topic for discussion that I want to get your you guys' thoughts on uh, before we get into our car-by-car -car analysis the manufacturers competing in the 12-hour this year. So we've got eight brands on the grid. Mercedes-AMG, Audi, Porsche, BMW, Lamborghini, KTM, Sin, and Mark Cars. And, Dave, I think you're pretty well credentialed to talk about this because I know that you follow global GT racing quite closely, but there are some notable absentees in terms of manufacturers, including Ferrari being quite a big one. Also, no representation from some of the brands that we've seen in previous years, such as Bentley. So if we look at the list of people that aren't here, Bentley, who, of course, took that amazing win with Jules Gounon across the control line in 2020. Uh, it was an absolute mission for the team from M Sport and Bentley to win this race, one of the Blue Riband GT events. They did that, tick the box. Then a pandemic happens. And one of the things that got dropped at Bentley was their global motorsport program. So Bentley, while the cars were produced by M Sport and there are some customers racing them, there is no longer a factory effort, so to speak. That was a, a big factory investment in the, uh, in the Intercontinental GT Challenge promoted by the SRO. Uh, and of course, they did also compete in GT World Challenge Europe. But as it sits, uh, no Bentley factory participation. BMW, of course, has arrived on the scene. Uh, this is a big step up. Uh, looking at the teams that they've managed to sway to them. Uh, they've picked up WRT, who were, as we know, were being lined up to uh, to run the Audi LMDH program, or as it's known in IMSA, GTP. Audi, of course, have now committed to Formula One, so they've pulled the pin on their Le Mans program. That meant that WRT didn't have a program to move on to. 
and they got poached by BMW. So they're bringing the brand new BMW M4, which would not have been eligible for last year's race because it was only homologated uh, at the end of 2021 and hadn't gone through the BOP tests prior to the event uh, taking place, had it taken place in its normal event in 2022. Uh, the key part to remember here about the BOP and the homologation of the cars, the Bathurst 12-hour, because it's an FIA and SRO event, taking place so early in the year, it's almost like it's the last event of the preceding calendar year as opposed to the first event of a, of a new year from a homologated cars perspective. You mentioned Ferrari not here. Well, Ferrari's gone through a bit of an upheaval as, as well recently. They've just debuted their uh, Le Mans hypercar program. Uh, that's where a number of the, of the resources are. And of course, Ferrari debuted their brand new 296 GT3, which is absolutely gorgeous with the twin turbo V6 due to the aforementioned homologation rules, that car's not eligible for the event. So as a manufacturer, would you want to be campaigning the 488 GT3? Admittedly, still a very uh, potent and and, uh, and um, competitive package, but it's not the current car that you sell. It doesn't make sense from a marketing perspective. I think come the 2024 edition, uh, you'll definitely see the, the, the Ferrari turn up, possibly with some assistance from AF Corsa. Uh, maybe there'll be a customer for... Um, for the uh, for Mark Coffey and the team at Marinello Motorsport and Peter Edwards to bring along. Who knows? Uh, another car that we're not seeing here and we're only seeing a privateer or uh, or semi semi factory team effort um, are the are the Porsches. Of course, we've got the brand new 992 generation GT3 Porsche, uh, but not too many of those to go around. And again, not eligible for the race. Uh, Nissan, of course, dropped off from the event. Of course, they've really focused on their domestic market. Uh, It'd be great to have Honda back, but of course we only saw that one car, single car representation of the JAS Autosport of the JAS um, JAS Autosport developed Honda NSX, or as it's known in the in the US, the Acura NSX. Again, they kind of dropped off from the IGTC uh, competition and didn't get a chance to get back. Uh, we're also missing the Lexus GT3, but of course that car um, mainly competes in the IMSA series and the Japanese Super GT. Um, the great thing about the GT3 cars is that if, if a competitor wants to run one and it's using the valve homologation and they're willing to put it in a container and ship it to Australia, by all means, the, the, uh, the organisers will, will make uh, availability for it to run. Um, but you know, we are at the very long end of a logistical chain and getting to Australia is one thing. Uh, spending all the money on, uh, on your crews in the current environment to get them here, uh, it's, it's just a logistical nightmare to get here, both financially and from a practicality perspective. Um, I think the grid that we do have speaks to the the factory support through the customer racing organisations in Australia. Big support from Mercedes-Benz AMG uh, and, of course, uh, Audi uh, Customer Racing through their support organisations, Melbourne Performance Centre based in Melbourne and Triple Eight Race Engineering based in Brisbane. Um, you know, the Lamborghini from Wall Racing is effectively an, an Audi R rating drag. Um, and of course, that that brand is well represented in customer racing circles worldwide. Um, and then, of course, we've got a smattering of cars in the invitational class, which is really an amalgamation of Class B for Carrera Cup cars, Class C for SRO GT4 cars, and invitational for Mark cars and GT2 cars. Beautifully explained and presented, as I would not expect anything less from you, Dave. Can I put one GT3 car on my wish list? of cars to say at the 2024 Bathurst 12 hour. Fire away, Lachlan. The Corvette GT3 car very recently unveiled. Now the, It the, looks the, so good. It, it does. 
Now, the Corvette's in a unique situation because it is running this weekend at uh, at Daytona, but that's not actually the Z06R GT3. That's actually the C8R, which is the GTLM or the GTE, the, the ACO specification car that's been detuned and down-spec'd and had ABS added to it and a number of changes added to it to make it a GT3 equivalent car so it can run in the in the GTD Pro category in the US. Uh, Pratt Miller, the organization that builds the car for uh, for, for GM, for, for Chevrolet Racing, uh, are hard at work building that GT3, full-spec GT3 car designed to be used by customers. And, of course, uh, it wouldn't be a GM announcement without a Ford announcement at the same time. Of course, Mustang coming to GT3 in 2023 and 2024 as well. For either of those two cars to, to be on the grid in 2024, one of two things will have to happen. Cars will have to be presented, homologated, BOP before the 2023 season is done, or someone at Supercars might have a really good idea that, hey, having a Chevrolet uh, Chevy Corvette and a Ford Mustang on the grid for 2024 might be a good idea. Let's bring them in and then figure out the BOP as you go from there. Again, that's the. I'm sure we'll have as much fun as possible discussing that in the 2024 edition of the Checkered Flag Chat Liquid Molly Baptist 12 Hour <laughs> Preview. But for this year, let's just focus on the cars we've got. <laughs> I am two thumbs up for the S650 generation Mustang GT3 car, which looks absolutely amazing. Engined by M Sport from the uh, from the aforementioned organisation that that did the work with the the such successful work with the Bentley Continental GT3. And, of course, does the work with Ford's World Rally Program. And, of course, a, a chassis and body development uh, by Multimatic, the, uh, the the massive international uh, global uh, design consultancy firm, of course, built the Ford GT. And we know what happened to the Ford GT the first time. It went back to Le Mans in 2016 from Multimatic. So uh, some really great cars to look forward to. Again, love to see a, a slew of factory and international uh, 992 generation Porsche GT3s next year as well. Just, just to add to Dave's point, I think if you're looking at this year's field and seeing that there's only 26 cars and maybe being glass half full, uh, half full, sorry, glass half empty rather than glass half full and sitting there going, we should have more or it should be closer to the almost 40 that we got in 2020. Just think about it this way, that this event's still building back from what it was in, in 2020 and from what is being promised from now into 2024 with some of the cars that could be entered and the way that gt3 is starting to look like there are exciting things along the way so yes we may not have the numbers this year but give it 12 months there could be some really exciting cars and really exciting teams entered on the grid for next year so while this year is going to be exciting 2024 could really see that that the the numbers build back to what it was in 2020 what what uh gt3 car is at the top of your wish list for next year shane i'd love the bentley back but i don't think that's going to happen um, I, I, I'd really love to see a Mustang and a Corvette come into the, into the, in, into the grid. I don't like Dave's idea of the supercars being put in. And I know in, uh, the 2021 edition, uh, sorry, the 2022 edition, there was rumors that, um, the, the, the 12 hour grid was open to, to supercars potentially coming in. And I don't think anyone applied in time or they didn't really have any interest in doing so. I think you got to keep those two sort of separate. Um, don't get me wrong, it'd be great to see how a supercar goes compared to a GT3 car. I think that'd be really exciting. But I think you still got to keep them separate for the time being, particularly the way that Gen 3 is going and what we need to see from that first. But I'd love to see the Ford and the the Corvette 
um, added. But I think the other thing is, well, the, the Ferrari and what's being promised from that, that looks exciting. I mean, to me, um, we've, never, we've never really seen, apart from I think one year where the Ferrari was really strong, we've never really seen Ferrari have a big presence here. Um, so to have them really have a good crack. Well, and, they have and, won it twice. <laughs> yes, but <laughs> in recent years, they haven't been as strong as what they were previously. True, so, you're so my right. point, so my the point last, is... The last win for Ferrari was 2017 with Craig Lowndes, Jamie Wincup and Tony Villander. And since then, we haven't put them into calculations in any shape. So to, to see them getting back to the pointy end to really provide a car that's going to be competitive, that's what I'm really looking forward to. We have actually seen a V8 supercar compete in the Bathurst 12-hour. Back in 2013, you might remember that Mal Rose ran his ex-Gary Rogers Motorsport Commodore supercar in the Invitational class. Yes, Gary, a.k.a. hashtag, what's wrong with my Commodore? Yeah, so I think they ended up finishing just outside the top 10 outright, but the car had been detuned. It certainly wasn't running in what you would describe as full V8 supercar spec. All right, time to get into the car-by-car analysis for this year's Bathurst 12-hour, and we're going to go through in number order of the cars on the entry list, and we're going to each give our thoughts and predictions about where we think they will finish up in the race. So we'll start off with car number four being run by the Grove Racing Operation, the Porsche 911 GT3R, Stephen Grove, his son Brenton Grove, and they'll be joined in that car by Supercars star, Anton Di Pasquale, starting with you, Shane, how do you expect the Grove team to perform? Well, if if previous form is anything to go by, these guys will go all right. They did really well at the Dubai 24-hour recently, uh, I believe. Not, I don't know if it's with the same car, but I believe with the same combination, they finished uh, inside the top five. So um, they've got the form already. They know how to go endurance racing. Um, the, the Groves don't muck around when it comes to racing either. They've raced overseas, they've raced here, and as we've seen with Grove Racing and Supercars, um, they've only gone up uh, since buying into that team. So you don't expect anything different to these guys in terms of where, where they should be. Um, obviously, the the thing that's going to hold them back is they're in the Pro-Am, so obviously they have, don't have three pro races in, in, the, in, the, in the field, but um, with the lucky dog and with everything going their way, you could easily see them finishing inside the top 10 and, and being a, a real threat towards the end of the race, especially if Anton gets his hands, um, especially if Anton gets in the car with, with the, the last hour. For Anton, he'd be hoping just to get on the starting grid after not being able to race in 2020. His car was eliminated before they even got to the grid. So hopefully they can get to the grid and hopefully they can race. And yeah, I think these guys can do really well. The interesting stat with the Groves is that Stephen Grove has won his class in the Bathurst 12 hour five times. So certainly when it comes to performing well within his class, Stephen Grove has got the runs on the board. Dave, how do you expect this combination to fare on the mountain? Absolutely in the hunt for the win in Class A Pro-Am. And definitely I put them down to be on the lead lap and threatening. If you've got Anton Di Pasquale in that car in the last hour of the race, which of course, looking at the the way the driver uh, driver times work out, is I'd certainly expect him to do a, a single or double stint towards the end. Um, that car with the strategy done by Grove Racing, and of course, uh, David Couchy will probably be on the cans running the strategy for that one. Very experienced at uh, at Mount Panorama endurance races. This is a team that's unlikely to make any of the small mistakes that trip up a lot of the internationals. And certainly with a very well-developed uh, 911, 991 Generation 2 
GT3R, a car that's very well developed, of course, a car they had a lot of success with overseas in some of the international GT3 races, including at the FIA Motorsport Games. So, um, you know, really good drivers, uh, very good exceptional gentleman drivers in the case of Stephen Grove. And of course, Brenton with a lot of uh, a lot of success, uh, a lot of experience in Super 2 recently as well. Uh, definitely a car to uh, a bit of a smoky for, I'd say, a top five outright finish. Uh, but certainly, um, I'd be expecting to be uh, P1 or P2 in Class A Pro-Am at the, come the end of the 12 hours. Yeah, I probably don't have them quite as high in the Pro-Am classes as you guys, I think, and we'll get to them. There's some other Pro-Am cars that have just got a couple of slightly faster Pro drivers when you look at the the strength of driving talent across all three drivers in the car. So I'm going to put them maybe third or fourth in the Pro-Am class, and I reckon in terms of an outright finish, somewhere between seventh and tenth would be my prediction. Moving on to car number six, running in the silver class for Wall Racing, the sole Lamborghini entry in the field, the Huracan for Tony Dalberto, David Wall, Grant Denyer, and Adrian Dietz. I don't think this car's quite got the pace to be in outright calculations, but if they stay out of trouble, then a commendable finish is certainly achievable at the end of the race. Dave, your thoughts on this car? Uh, so, again, the, the lone Lamborghini in the field. Uh, we know that Wall Racing has had a really good season running the uh, the TCR program for Honda. Of course, they won the 2022 TCR Australia Series with Tony D'Alberto aboard one of the Jazz Autosport-built um, uh, Honda Civic Type Rs. Uh, and, of course, everyone loves Adrian Dietz's uh, BASF liveried uh, red and white uh liveried Lamborghini Huracan. The car's a little bit old in the tooth. Uh, I'm not sure if it's had the latest update package put on it. Uh, it doesn't indicate that in the uh, in the model field or the entry list. Um, I'd be expecting these guys to put in a really good solid performance. Uh, definitely top 10 capable, uh, but certainly um, in the given the fact that they're a silver competitor, they're, they're looking to run at that, that level just below Pro-Am, uh, having the two silver drivers on board, which would be uh, Adrian Dietz, and, uh, and Grant Denyer, I think, would be silver as well. Shane, in some of the discussions that you and I have had off-air, you mentioned to me that you think that this is a bit of a smoking. I do, but I, I've also had a quick look at the silver category and some of the other names that have been named in the last couple of days, and it's going to be tough for them to probably win their own class, let alone going for an outright win. Um I guess at the end of the day, if anyone can keep on the lead lap and you put your best driver in at the end, anything can happen. But, yeah, I just think with some of the other competitors, as we'll get to in silver, um, and I think Dalberto will probably finish for these guys um, at the end of the race, I just feel that there's a couple of other quality drivers that might have the edge on on this entry. Last year they finished in the top five. Um, Obviously different conditions, different classes um, in, in relation to that. I think for them a top 15 finish is commendable. Um, that their, their job's going to be simple. Just keep the, the car straight, make sure it gets the finish and see where, where they end up at the end. I mean, you just never know with this type of, with this type of race and particularly in the silver class, if some of the other cars have problems, um, they can easily put themselves right into contention to win outright. But I, I think top three in silver is their aim. And I think top 15 outright is their aim. And if they get both of those things, I think, yeah, they're going to be right. But they're going to be happy with their weekend. We should probably take this as an opportunity to remind people how the classing structure works. 
So we yeah, have good a, point, Dave. Uh, yep. So the FIA grades drivers according to their their age, their experience, and their performance uh, in certain categories. Uh, if you'd like to go and, and spend several hours of your of your day putting yourself to sleep, uh, there is a really nice uh, document on the FIA website. Uh, it's got a lot of checks and balances in it, but it's a lot of ifs, ands, maybes. You can appeal your classification, things like that. But what we'll really focus on is the fact that drivers are graded to four categories, bronze, silver, gold, and platinum. Platinum is mainly the, the, the purveyance of you know, the elite factory driver professionals. So the people that have been doing it for a while, very successful, uh, paid very well for it. Uh, golds tend to also be the professional drivers uh, who perhaps haven't, aren't factory drivers, so to speak, but they have had success at a very high level. Then we get into silver or bronze where it tends to get a little bit murky. Uh, bronze drivers tend to be a drivers over a certain age that weren't racing professionally at a, at a, at a young age. And silvers tend to be the, the most or the best performing gentleman drivers or the non-professionals. So think people like you know Kenny Habul and things like that. Uh, whereas silver can also be drivers uh, that may have been professional but uh, are over a certain age and haven't got any huge degree of success. So if we have a look at that car uh, that we're looking at, so the the hallmark, the next car we're looking at the, uh, sorry, the Wall Racing Lamborghini, Tony D'Alberto and David Wall are rated as silver and Grant Denyer and Adrian Dietz are rated as bronze. The requirement of the silver category is that all drivers are to be categorized silver or bronze. Um, and all of this information is in the Bathurst 12-hour website in the supplementary regulations, which again, if you'd like to uh, browse them and put yourself to sleep. It's a great cure for insomnia. A <laughs> great bedtime reading. Thanks for that explanation, though, Dave. I think it was important to clarify some of those points just to, to understand how the driver rankings work. And it can be quite contentious as well, particularly determining the difference, for example, between a silver and a gold driver can sometimes be up for debate because another category of driver that would fall into the silver category would be young up-and-coming drivers who haven't necessarily had a lot of career achievements just yet but in a lot of cases they can be quite quick so the distinction between silver and gold can sometimes be open to discussion we'll keep moving through though car number nine third car on the list this car is in the pro-am class it's the hallmark audi r8 and it's being driven by Lee Holdsworth, Dean Fiore, and Mark Sini. It's a combination with plenty of experience and plenty of experience racing together. So um, <laughs> it, it's going to be pretty easy for them to get back to, to yeah, familiarity with each other. I think this is another combination that on their day could do pretty well. Um, I, I don't think they've got enough class to, to go for an outright, but um, certainly a top 10 finish wouldn't be out of the question for them. But I just think that in terms of the Pro-Am, and I think we'll get to it a little bit later, there's some other cl- other cars that are uh, probably just a bit more, got a bit more of an edge to them that probably puts them in front of uh, this combination. So I think, yeah, I think they'll be pushing for a top 10 finish, but I think more so probably from 11 to 15 is where they'll probably be sitting in this race. Yeah, I tend to agree. And Dave, one of the observations that I would make with this car is as good a driver as Lee Holdsworth is, and obviously Bathurst 1000 winner, when you look at his past performances in the 12-hour, he hasn't been quite as quick in a GT3 car as some of his supercars peers, you would have to say. Yeah, so this one, of course, uh, Holdsworth and Fiori both rated as gold and Mark rated as a bronze. 
Uh, certainly, I'd see this one as putting in a solid performance in Pro-Am, but I wouldn't mark them down as a smoky for an outright result. Um, certainly, Mark Cini is a safe pair of hands. He's been uh, keeping himself busy in both GT and in uh, Porsche Carrera Cup over the years, so he certainly knows his way around the machines. Uh, Lee is definitely someone who's is very much uh, respected up and down the pit lane for being a nice driver, so he's unlikely to be the driver that puts it in the fence uh, or puts another driver in the fence passing a slower car through the course of the race. Yeah, I, I agree with both your thoughts on this car, and I reckon that a finish either just inside or just outside the top 10 outright, and I'm not sure that they're quite going to have the speed to be in the top three in the Pro-Am class, all things being equal. All right, car number 10, another one of our silver class cars. It's the Myland Audi, which this car is actually going to be run by a crew from the New Zealand-based International Motorsport outfit who are travelling over to Australia, and that's because two out of the three drivers are Kiwis, Daniel Gort and Andrew Fawcett, and they're going to be joined by the Aussie Dylan O'Keefe. Again, another, another Audi run out of MPC, so we know it'll be very well prepared. Um, Daniel Gaunt, a driver who's, who's tasted Bathurst podium success. Of course, he partnered with James Moffat in the 2014 edition of the Great Race. It's definitely been a safe pair of hands. Dylan O'Keefe has been keeping himself busy in a number of different categories, uh, Porsche Carrera Cup and TCR in the last couple of years. And, of course, partnered up with uh, James Golding in the Subway, Com- uh, Subway Commodore in last year's edition of the Bathurst 1000. So both of them got plenty of miles around uh, Bathurst. The question mark for me will be Andrew Fawcett from New Zealand. Uh, about what he can uh, what he can pull out of the car. Um, certainly, you know, the car will be run well and it's a very reliable package. Uh, so certainly uh, a strong result in the silver category, but probably not a, um, possibly not a, a threat for the outright podium. Shane, you'd have to say, pretty much echoing Dave's thoughts, it's a solid combination. Uh, probably doesn't quite have the outright speed to contend for uh, like an overall or an outright result but it's another one of those combinations where if they can keep their nose clean they could be somewhere towards the pointy end come the end of the day i think a lot of the result for this combination is going to rely on dylan o'keefe um mainly because he's probably going to be the lead driver out of the three and this is daniel gaunt's first 12 hour and four years his last one uh, sorry five years his last one was in 2018 and obviously we we don't know what force it's going to provide uh, on the day so uh, there's a lot of question marks to this um, to this combination. So I think for, for them to get a good result, Dylan's going to have to do a lot of work to get them towards the front. I think, again, top 15 finishes where they're going to aim for. And um, if they can finish inside the top three in the class, uh, I think they'll be happy. I don't think they'll take it outright. I think there's a couple of other combinations that are stronger. But certainly um, this combination is one that if Dylan can do a good job, uh, there's a good result coming for them. Well said. I, I do agree with your thoughts on Dylan O'Keefe definitely being, you would have to say, the number one driver in that car based on his recent Mount Panorama experience. First of our invitational class cars is car number 19. Appropriately, it's the 19 Corporation machine. Mark Griffith and two yet-to-be-confirmed co-drivers in the Mercedes-Benz GT4 car, the only GT4 car entered in the race, You'd have to say that it'll be the slowest car in the field just based on the fact that even against the other invitational class cars, it's not going to be as quick. So really, uh, it's just a case of cruising around, staying out of trouble and seeing how many places they can make up through the attrition of other cars, Dave. 
Well, certainly, you know, kudos to Mark Griffith for putting his money where his mouth is. He's also been one of the first uh, to uh, to commit to the GT4 series that's running in conjunction with the Australian production cars throughout the course of 2023. Um, for whatever reason, GT4 has just never really resonated with this market up until this date. Um, there's probably been a lot of focus on the GT3 cars. And as GT3 cars have gotten faster and faster and faster, they've also gotten more and more expensive to, to build and buy in the first instance and also to maintain because they've become more and more uh, bespoke race cars. Whereas now the GT4 cars are effectively like a like a production car running on slicks with some upgraded brakes, upgraded suspension, not a huge degree of aero. Um, certainly the cars are no slouches. You know, they'll I think the GT4 lap record time is down in the low uh, 2 minute 14s, 2 minute 15s. So the lap times are somewhat comparable to a pro-driven TCR car, um, it, but just for whatever reason, um, you know, a lot of drivers seem to be reluctant uh, to enter them into the major endurance events. We've certainly seen a lot more of them in the international stuff. You know, there's a huge array of GD4 cars in the uh, in the Nurburgring, uh, Nurburgring uh, Langstrecken series, and of course, uh, a big GD4 contingent in the US. Um, a lot of the time, they do tend to run their own races. So I think this will be a good testing ground for, 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 for Mark. It'll, uh, it's certainly it'd certainly be nice to see TBC uh, get a drive uh, for for a change, but I have a suspicion that he'll he or she will probably be replaced by the time they get to the event. Uh, this will certainly be a good testing run for them for when they're back here at Easter, um, doing the uh, doing the GD4 and and surplus production car races uh, in support of the high tech oils Bathurst six hour. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see who Mark Griffith gets as his co-drivers. When you look at people who he's had driving with him in the past. Will Brown, you would have to say, might be a possibility. But then again, does Will Brown really want to be driving around for 12 hours in the slowest car in the field? I'm not quite sure about that. So um, a, a couple of other potentials. Uh, Chris Batsios, who has been racing GT4 in the GT World Challenge Australia Championship in a very similar car. He could be a potential driver who has had experience in those types of cars who could slot in quite well. So... Anyway, it'd be interesting to see what unfolds in the next few days after we release this podcast. Shane, do you have any thoughts that you want to contribute on this car? No, I, I just just like the buy. Um, the, the TBCs are waiting for their opportunity to shine, but uh, unfortunately they're not going to get one this time. There will certainly be drivers added to that over the week. So hopefully they can grab two uh, drivers that are yeah capable of uh, racing for 12 hours and yeah as you mentioned before it's just basically seeing how far they can get until um how far they can get until the end of the race and hopefully take advantage of other people's downfalls for the, throughout the day all right car number 24 the volante rosso motorsport mercedes change of scenery for tony bates because since 2018 he has raced an Audi, but he's made the cross to Mercedes for the first time since 2017. He'll be joined in that car by his good mate, David Reynolds, and also Jordan Love, who in the last couple of years has, has spent a lot of time racing a Mercedes GT3 car, last year competing in the GT World Challenge Europe Championship, including the Spa 24-hour and he is also, of course, a former Career Cup Australian champion as well. Jonesy, this car, you would have to say that we know that David Reynolds is quick. Jordan Love has had a lot of time now in these sorts of cars. He was super fast last year in the GT3 hour when he teamed up with Ross Palakas. So 
really it's all going to come down to Batesy and uh, how well they manage his stints in the car. We know that Batesy is very much what you would describe as a confidence drive when he's in a good mood and when he's fired up, he's as fast as anybody. I think that Batesy's in a pretty good headspace at the moment, so I think we'll be seeing the best of him on the mountain. I think that there's two key things to to, to this combination. One, strategy and how they can best utilise the, the two leading drivers in Reynolds and Love throughout the day. And then the other one is, can they recover the laps potentially lost by Batesy throughout the, the day? Um, there's no doubt that if this car is in a position to to be right in the hunt of things at the end of the day, that that either Love or Reynolds can can certainly put them towards the front. It's just whether they get that opportunity to do so. So I think these this combination is one of the ones that to look out for in Pro-Am. And, and if everything goes to plan on the day, a, a top five finish is certainly no other question. Um, unfortunately, I just don't think that's going to happen. I just think that they're going to fall outside the top 10. And um, I think they're just going to fall short in the Pro-Am class. So um, if everything goes right, this combination can certainly do well. But if everything doesn't go right obviously it'll be a very tough day for them so i'm probably towards that ladder oh (laughs) so i wish you were a bit more optimistic shane we should probably make a couple of points number one tony bates is a long time client of checkered flag media so i'll be the one punching out the social media updates and writing the media releases over the weekend so i'm hoping for some positive news to write about the second point that we should make is that for the pro-am class cars the AM or the, the bronze ranks driver in the car must do a minimum of three hours during the race and at least one hour in the second half of the race. So the way that you manage that driving time is going to be critical to determining your outright result. We saw this last year, particularly with how the, particularly because of the focus on the gentleman driver and making sure they made a, a real commitment to the to the race result. Uh, certainly, this is one way of making sure you don't stack the early part of your race with any of the of the bronze driver time, and then leave all your pros to do stints back to back at the end of the race. Uh, of course, if you do get a chance to get any of those lucky dog uh, lucky dog maneuvers, uh, the safety car wave around after the first two hours are complete. Certainly, you'd want to try to you know use those up on your gentleman driver. Um, I wouldn't be knocking Tony Bates. He certainly showed that he was very competitive in GT World Challenge Australia. Got a lot of familiarity um, with this race. Be interesting to see how he goes after a change from the mid-engined uh, V10 Audi R8 to the front-engined V8 uh, Mercedes AMG GT3. Interestingly, of course, all three drivers in that car have got quite a number of years of driving experience in Porsche Carrera Cup cars. So it'll be interesting to see what all their thoughts are like about that car. Uh, the car they're driving compared to the cars that they cut their teeth in. From the three-pointed start to the propeller, we move to the first of our BMWs, car number 32, Team WRT, for Sheldon Vanderlinder, the reigning DTM champion, Dregs Vantor and Charles Witts. Now, Vantor and Witts had a pretty successful year last year, winning the GT World Challenge Europe Sprint Cup, as I mentioned Sheldon Vanderlinder won the DTM championship. And Dregs Vantor, a former Bathurst 12-hour winner in 2018 with Robin Frines and Stuart Leonard. In fact, the last combination to win the Bathurst 12-hour in an Audi. But this time, Vantor behind the wheel of BMW. And Dave, I know that you're really looking forward to seeing these new M4 GT3 cars in action. Well, definitely. You know, it's a very different car to a lot of the rest of the field. It's based off a 
a car that shares its platform with, you know, a four-door, five-seat touring car, uh, being the BMW 3 Series and 4 Series. It runs a, the smallest engine in the field, a three-litre turbocharged straight-six engine. But what a debut for the car in the 2023 season. Of course, recently took out the uh, WRT, took out first and third places in the Hankook uh, Dubai 24-hour as part of the Cravantic series just a few short weeks ago uh, in an amazing debut uh, for those cars in that event. And, of course, they spent most of 2022 uh, testing uh, at a number of events in Europe. Uh, it's been very competitive uh, globally. Uh, so in the US, uh, in Europe, uh, it, it, BMW needed to come back and they needed to stamp their authority on this race. Um, they haven't quite had the success uh, or, the, or the, the consistent commitment to it from a professional level, uh, but to come here with a two-car effort from WRT with the factory drivers uh, is massive. And certainly this will be the car that uh, everyone looks to see, you know, what it's able to do uh, in terms of, you know, this is the car that I think the team will be focusing on, you know, the, uh, the, the outright performance goals. And Shane, you would have to say that just based on the credentials of the three drivers in this car, it's a red-hot contender for outright victory. One of the favourites, no doubt. Um, I, I, as Dave mentioned, they've, they've had a really good start with the car, and that's going to be the, the key for this, week, for this weekend coming up. Just can the car survive the 12 hours? Can the car be competitive for the 12 hours compared to the other makes that have been here for the last two to three years? Um, that's the key. Um, BMW have always been quick here. Um, Chas Moster took a pole in a previous form of them, uh, BMW, uh, a few years ago. But once the race starts, they have, they've had issues and they just haven't been able to, to really get that result that they're after. So this could be the opportunity for them uh, to win the race for the first time. I think the last time a BMW won the 12-hour was back in the, the production days. So, um, yeah, certainly that's what they're going to be looking to, to tick off this weekend to get their first 12-hour win as a manufacturer in the GT3 class. And, um, yeah, they've got every opportunity to do so. Last Bathurst 12-hour win for BMW, 2010 to be precise. The 335i for Gary Holt, Paul Morris and John Bow, which, like you quite correctly pointed out there, Shane, back in the production car era, of the Bathurst 12-hour. Car number 44, it's another one of our silver-class cars, the Valmont Racing Mercedes-AMG GT3. We've got Marcel Zalua, Duvashan Padiachi, Aaron Cameron, and great to see him back in the car after recovering from a nasty broken collarbone in Adelaide last year, Sergio Perez. I think this is a combination that's just looking to get to the end, hopefully finishing inside the top 20 and being as high as they can be in the silver-class. I think... Um, yeah, I think this is a combination that's that's on its merit could absolutely do really well and, and win the silver class. But as there's a couple of other combinations that I think are a little bit stronger, I, I just don't have them there. But as I said, if, if anything goes right in the day, you never know. But um, it'll be interesting to see how they handle the four drivers on the day. They're, they're only one of a few combinations that have got four drivers um, racing together. So it'll be interesting to see how that all goes out. I'll be, I'll be intrigued to see how, how Aaron Cameron goes as well. Um, he's um, touted as one of the next um, best new generation kids on the block. So um, it'd be good to see how he goes in a GT3 car. And yeah, I'm looking forward to that. But yeah, I think this combination's just not there in terms of the other silver class entries. And I think, um, yeah, top 15 finish is probably what they're going to be after. If they can get that, I think that'll be a good day out for them. 
Dave, I know that you're good friends with both Marcel and Sergio, who are big supporters of production sports car racing in New South Wales and Victoria. So fantastic to see Sergio back behind the wheel after that horrific crash in Adelaide. Yeah, definitely. To think that just, you know, sort of five or six years ago, I was racing against these guys in a old Carrera Cup cars and then later on with my Mustang. Uh, you know, it just, just speaks to, you know, that progression that all of the drivers that race in this event start somewhere. And whether you, you're coming to it as a professional and you've been through carts, the junior formula, applied your trade and then become a professional, or whether you're a gentleman racer, you know, such as Marcel and Sergio, who started off basically doing track days and then, you know, racing old Carrera Cup cars in 60-minute New South Wales production sports car races. Um, to think they've made the step up in such a short period of time, um, you know, to the Mercedes-AMG GT3, is just, just credit to the fact that they work so well together. Um, and obviously their, their businesses away from the track are doing spectacularly well that they're able to fund this along with their partners uh, through the course of the event. Indeed it is. So that'll be a combination where, as Shane said, they'll be looking just to stay out of trouble and see where they end up at the end of the race. Number 46 it is synonymous with one of the greatest motorcycle races of all time. What can he do behind the wheel of a GT3 spec BMW M4 at Mount Panorama? Well, we'll find out the answer to that question this weekend when Valentino Rossi climbs behind the wheel for his first laps of the 6.2-kilometre circuit. He will be teaming up with Augusto Farfus and Maxime Martin in that BMW M4 GT3. And, Dave, there's going to be a huge amount of media attention and international interest on this car purely because of the Rossi factor. I'm fairly certain that the organisers could have offered free freight, free entry, free tyres and free fuel to this car because they would have gotten that back in marketing and promotional value almost instantly once they announced that the famous 46 was coming to Bathurst. We've seen, of course, Valentino Rossi since he retired from, from full-time cycling. Even even before he'd retired from full, full-time cycling, he was dabbling in a number of different disciplines. He tried his hand at some rallying, but he's really, really uh, developed an affinity for GT racing, uh, formerly with Audi through the association with WRT. Of course, as WRT switched their uh, promotional or their, their partnership as far as their manufacturer is concerned to BMW, uh, Valentino's come along with that. And, of course, what a coup for BMW uh, to effectively make their return to top-line GT racing at Bathurst with Valentino Rossi. Of course, BMW, also a very famous bike brand as well. So the cross-promotional avenues for BMW with this entry are massive. Uh, the event has certainly... Richard Crail and the media team behind the event have certainly uh, not wasted the opportunity to celebrate the fact that we'll have uh, Valet, uh, Il Dottore, join us at, uh, at Bathurst uh, but certainly this 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 car will be um, you know will be reliable they've had a year to develop it that great performance at Dubai we mentioned um, can it be an outright competitive car at the end of end of the race Valentino is still a little bit of a question mark in terms of the outright lap speed uh, but I think like some of our other pro-am competitors if the chips fall the right way and they get the uh, essentially the non-pro driver time out of the way as quickly as possible. Uh, come the end of the race, if they've got um, if they've got Maxime and Augusto in the car to share most of the last you know three or four stints of the race with good tyres, good fuel strategy, and staying on the lead lap, absolutely this car is still a contender. But of the two BMWs, probably not the strongest competitor for an outright podium. 
No, I tend to agree that the other BMW, the number 32 car, is probably the one that's more likely to be challenging for outright victory. But, Shane, that doesn't take away from the fact that there's going to be a huge amount of interest just in terms of watching Valentino Rossi coming to grips with one of these GT3 cars at Mount Panorama. We know from all of his bike racing achievements that he has no fear of anything. So watching him throw a GT3 car across the top of the mountain through Reed and Sulman Park at 200 k's an hour plus with, you know, the enormous downforce that these GT3 cars produce, you go absolutely flat out over the top of the mountain. That is going to be something spectacular to watch. It will be, and I can't wait to see his reaction after he does his first few laps around the mountain just to get his description of what driving around that panorama is going to be like. I echo Dave's um, comments here. I think they're a top five contender. They can certainly do really well on the day if all the chips fall into the into place. But I think the other BMW entry is far stronger, and I think um, all the chips for BMW is going to be riding on that hope rather than the other one. But that doesn't mean that this combination can't be strong and can't put off a, pull out a good result. Well, move on to car number forty seven, which is going to be shared by the brothers James and Theo Conduras from Canberra. They've had lots of experience over many years in various sports cars, the career of cup racing and GT racing. They'll be joined by David Russell, who's had an outstanding record at Mount Panorama the last couple of years in the Bathurst 1000. And a name that none of us I don't really think expected to see on the entry list, Jonathan Webb, making his return to competition behind the wheel of the Superbahn Audi. Shane, how do we think John O. Webb's going to go behind the wheel of the GT car? Well, if the rumours were potentially true last year, he might have got a, a supercars drive with Tickford Racing. So I don't think um, he's sort of wanted to, to step out of the car of any car and not compete. So it's great to see him back, and hopefully he does really well. But it has been a little while since he's been in a in a car in a competitive environment at, at the mountain. But I mean, he's a former Bathurst One Thousand winner. I think he's won the Twelve Hour as well. So um, certainly. Um, his credentials are there. So I don't think it's going to be too hard for him to find that form again. But this combination is going to rely on David Russell and, and whether he can produce the same quality that he's done over the last two Bathurst 1000s with Erebus and um, Brody Kostekin. If he can do that, this combination has every chance of taking out the silver class. But it's going to rely on them getting in a position for David Russell to take advantage of it. So that's that's the goal for them. Getting getting into the into the good position without an hour and a half to go and give David Ross the opportunity to, to claim silver honors. I think again, top fifteen finishes where they will want to be at the end of the race and taking out the silver class. And I think if everything goes to plan, this can this combination can certainly do it. Um, I think the the goal of this car will be to finish, uh, to make sure that they uh, don't make any mistakes. Um, it is loaded with drivers that have not got a huge amount of track time in the last couple of years. Um, you know, David Russell, absolutely the, the experienced pair of hands, and he'd be the driver I'd be expecting to see in the car for the last two stints. Um, Jonathan Webb, bit of a question mark over him in terms of how much driving he's been doing recently. Um, the Conduras brothers, a reasonably good pair of hands, but certainly not the outright speed that I'd expect to make this car a, a, a P1 in Silver Cup competitor, um, but certainly a car that um, would just focus on doing the things we do well, doing them really well, make it to the end, keep an eye on the mirrors, 
and uh, just not getting tangled up anything. I think the, the biggest risk for a car like this is just getting tangled up in someone else's race that uh, that they weren't anticipating to be uh, to be a part of. Staying out of trouble, staying away from other cars and not becoming engaged in any unnecessary battles is probably the smartest approach to the race for the crew in car number 47. Car number 50, it's the next of our invitational class cars, the KTM Crossbow for Trent Harrison, Glenn Wood, David Crampton, and Jaden Ojeda. And this car is a GT2 spec car. Now, Dave, you can probably explain a bit more about this, but GT2 is a formula that's growing in popularity over in Europe. In terms of where GT2 cars sit on the performance spectrum, it's somewhere between GT3 and GT4. One of the things that we know about this KTM crossbow is that it's very, very fast in a straight line. Probably the main concern for me surrounding this car and its ability to get a result in the Bathurst 12-hour would be reliability. So a GT3 car uh, started off, basically, they you know when they started in 2006, they looked a lot more like what we now call GT2 cars. Um, so there's a whole host of resources out there on the internet where you can fill yourselves in on why certain classes are called different things. But effectively, uh, GT3 didn't used to be such an aerodynamically dependent formula. Uh, a GT3 car runs between 500 to 550 horsepower um, and does you know lap times that are a fair sight quicker, uh, whereas the GT2 cars tend to run a lot more horsepower, somewhere between six to 700, depending upon the BOP, but they're far less reliant on the aerodynamics. So they're a lot easier for a non-professional driver to drive. So we've seen a lot of the brands jumping on board with this. Uh, KTM with the Crossbow, uh, Porsche with the GT2 RS Club Sport. Uh, uh, Mercedes recently announcing they're doing a GTV, GT2 version of the AMG GT. Um, you know, we had Brabham debut the BT63 uh, for, for GT2 competition. There's also a Lamborghini. Uh, there's an Audi GT2. And uh, basically, you know, turned the wick up on a Ferrari challenge car and made it a GT2 car. So it's it's growing a lot more support in Europe, particularly from those drivers that have kind of felt that GT3 left them behind in terms of not having the the skill to access the the, the last bit of performance from trusting the aerodynamics. The, the cars do have aero on them, but there's nowhere near the, the level of a GT3 car. And certainly we saw that come into play last year when this car debuted in this event. I had no trouble keeping up with or even passing some of the other cars in a straight line, but not the outright pace equivalent. So we see it running. I think the fastest we saw it run was about a 205.5, with the professional drivers on board, whereas the fastest GT3 cars will be running in the 203s, 204s, um, during the, the outright pace moments. Uh, turbocharged car, so definitely we'll see a lot more performance from this car earlier in the day when the when the air is nice and cold and dense. Uh, we probably will struggle a little bit more towards the middle of the day uh, where the air density will drop off. And like I said, reliability. In its last couple of appearances at Mount Panorama, unfortunately, they've had some mechanical problems with it. So that'll be their main priority will be getting the car to the finish of the race without any mechanical dramas. Shane, how do you expect this car to go? I completely agree. Uh, I think the last time they raced was at the three-hour um, that they had uh, at the Bathurst Invitational last year, and um, there were there were issues with the car throughout that race. So it, it's going to be key and critical for them to, to survive the 12-hour. As Dave mentioned before, this car can do a 205.5. 
they actually can't do that in this race. Uh, one of the rules as of being in the invitational class is you can't do a time quicker than two minutes and six seconds. So if they do that, um, they automatically get a drive-through penalty. And if they do that again, well, then they get heavier penalties. And if they continue to do it, well, they'll get disqualified. So that probably takes them out of outright. And the reality is they're not going to be an outright contender anyway. This is an invitational entry that just wants to get to the end of the 12-hour, and that will be a result in itself for them. Another car in the invitational class is car number 52, which is the Mark II Coupe with Keith Kosulke, Hadrian Morale, and Cameron McLeod. It's really a case of a couple of gentlemen drivers in Keith Kosulke and Hadrian Morale teaming up with an up-and-coming young gun, Cameron McLeod, who went really well in the Australian Formula Ford Series last year and has recently announced that he'll be stepping up into the Super 3 Series in 2023. And the same comments in terms of the lap time ceiling of two minutes and six seconds apply to this car as they do for the KTM. Jonesy, uh, your thoughts on this combination and how they'll go? I think it's the same as the KTM, just surviving to the end and um, hoping that they can get to the end and maybe finishing inside the top 20. I think this. I think with both marked cars, we'll get to the other one in, in just a second, but I think it's just providing a great opportunity for some up-and-coming youngsters to drive and also give the gentleman drivers an opportunity in a, in a car that's, um, I guess, designed for this event. So it's great to see them back again for, for another year, and I think they're... Their goal and their ambition is just to get to the end and finish inside the top 20. Always a fan when I see Keith Kasuki get back behind the wheel. Um, for those who don't know, he, he was very badly burned in a testing fire at Phillip Island aboard an Ascari GD3 car. Um, so to have him back, uh, you know, being able to race and commit to the sport uh, is always a blessing. And uh, it's always great to see him in the paddock. Lovely guy. Um, and has always been willing to give uh, new races a chance. Uh, whether it's him running in Touring Car Masters or in the Mark cars, uh, always great to have him there and uh, certainly someone that uh, makes the paddock a nicer place to be. I'm very interested in car number 55, Brad Schumacher, James Golding and Frederick Verveesh. Now, Brad Schumacher and his Schumacher Motorsport team recently announced a tie-up with the Premier Racing outfit that we see competing in the Supercars Championship and also Drag Racing. Now, James Golding, who, of course, drives for Premier Racing in supercars, has been drafted in to join Brad Schumacher. Frederick Verveesh is an international factory Audi driver who is coming across to be a part of this combination. Brad Schumacher is one of the best AM drivers in Australia at the moment. He and his co-drivers were arguably very unlucky not to win the Bathurst 12-hour outright last year. So I say this combination is capable of not only a class win in Pro-Am, but also potentially springing a bit of a surprise in the outright placings. Shane, what do you reckon? I think with all Pro-Am combinations, it's going to be relying on getting to the lead lap or staying on the lead lap for as long as possible and hoping that you can get your best driver in at the end. That's going to be the key for these guys. But you're right, uh, this combination is one of the the strongest ones on paper in, in the Pro-Am class. And you, you'd think that if everything goes to plan on the day, this this combination can in, easily be in, inside the top 10 and pushing for, for outright honours on top of winning their class in Pro-Am. I have them probably second or third. I, there's one combination that I think is just that little bit stronger, and we'll get to that in a sec. So I think a top three finish in Pro-Am is, is a minimum for them. I think that's what they'll be expecting. 
and yeah, who knows what could happen uh, right at the end of the race um, without right contention. These guys can certainly be in there if um, if everything goes to plan. It's going to be an interesting test for James Golding because we've seen that he's obviously had some really good results in open wheel racing, particularly in S5000, and also did a very good job of coming to grips with the Premier Racing supercar midway through last season, but hasn't really done a lot in a GT car. Frederick Verveesh, though, factory Audi driver, he'll be very quick. And like I said, Brad Schumacher, one of the top AM drivers in Australia. Dave, your thoughts on this combination? Uh, certainly the decision to replace uh, his predecessor at at um, at Premier Racing has certainly been met with fairly widespread approval in the paddock. Uh, we saw a number of good performances from uh, from James, uh, aka Jimmy, aka Beebs uh, for Bieber from his nickname back in the Gary Rogers Motorsport days. Um, certainly we know that, that Brad is rated as one of the, the most experienced and best credentialed gentleman drivers uh, in Australia at the present. And again, another competitor like Sergio and Marcel, who I remember racing against, you know, five or six years ago in New South Wales production sports cars. Uh, you know, he's come back from a couple of setbacks uh, with a Porsche Carrera Cup car crash and uh, a basically a Lotus GT4 car that effectively exploded itself going up mountain straight with a uh, rear suspension failure. Uh, he talks about that in a, a recent podcast, I believe, uh, with one of the uh, Australian motorsport uh, journalists. Um, we're looking forward to seeing what he can do. Uh, they were so cruelly, you know, not anything in his control. Uh, unfortunately, they were affected by a drive time violation uh, in last year's edition because they were looking in the hunt in that pro-am one-off 2022 edition of the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12-hour. That their, their combination was set. They were operating at a really high level and someone just missed how long someone had been in the car for, let them drive. And it wasn't one or two seconds. It was several minutes more than they were allowed to. And uh, unfortunately, that uh, basically, you know, the penalty for that took them out of the, the comp- competition for that race because this is definitely a race that uh, the Brad Schumacher wants to win as a, as a Bathurst or a Kelso local. Um, so definitely a car to look out for, uh, particularly in that, uh, in that pro-am field. And, of course, uh, to, when you draft in um, Jimmy Golding as your co-driver, that's, that's one feather in your cap. But to get Frederick Vervishian, another one of the Audi uh, factory GT drivers, uh, it shows that, that Brad and the team at Premier is leaving no stone unturned to, uh, to make, make this a really strong campaign. Indeed. So I expect this car to be one of the front runners in the Pro-Am class. Car number 65 is listed in the silver class. It'll be run by the Melbourne Performance Centre squad, and it has Liam Talbot, Fraser Ross, and Chaz Mostert sharing the driving duties. Dave, you would have to say that a big determining factor in how this car finishes is where the car is situated when Chaz Mostert gets behind the wheel for the final sprint to the chequered flag. Definitely. So we've been having a little discussion about this offline. Uh, Not sure whether this car is meant to be in the silver class, given the fact that uh, Chaz is rated as an FIA gold driver. You'd certainly say that his driving exploits in the last decade would certainly rate him as an FIA gold. Um, But there may be some some mitigating circumstances we're not aware of. Uh, Liam Talbot, we know, has been very successful, uh, as has Fraser Ross, uh, be it in Porsches, be it in Audis. Um, be it in any number of brands uh, up and down the pit lane. 
again, very credentialed uh, gentleman drivers and non-pro drivers uh, looking to make uh, an impact on this race. Um, certainly, Chaz has been in the hunt a couple of times with a couple of different brands. Of course, uh, he was for a period of time uh, effectively a BMW factory GT driver taking out the Daytona 24 in the GTLM class a few years ago uh, aboard an M8 GTLM. Um, but certainly a car run by Melbourne Performance, Melbourne Performance Centre, uh, looking for a very strong result in class. And uh, again, I echo the comments I do about some of the very strong pro-am combinations with the right strategy, with the safety cars falling at the right time and having the dry times worked out so that Chaz is in the car at the end. Uh, certainly a car that if it was on the lead lap at the end of the race with a late race safety car, uh, certainly wouldn't put it past it for a sneaky shot at the top five outright. Shane, in some of the conversations that you and I have had offline, you've said that you think that this car can win if it's in a good enough position towards the end with Chaz behind the wheel. Are you going to stick with that prediction? Well, the first 10 hours will be pivotal to see whether, whether that comes to fruition or not. I mean, if Chaz is in a position to win the race, you would you would argue that against the best drivers in the world and everyone else, he's absolutely capable of beating anyone and, and winning a race. So it's just going to depend on how this combination goes over the first 10 hours to put them in a position. Um, to me, this is the favourite for the silver class. I mean, whether whether or not they should be in the silver class, well, that's another argument for another day. But based on what the entry list is saying and based on the three drivers that are, that are scheduled to race in this entry... Um, to me, they are number one and they are the favourites and I'd expect them to, to take out the silver class. How far they go up in the outright ranks, well, that depends on what happens during the day. But yeah, I would I would argue that if Chaz is in a position against the best drivers in the world and the car's on, on song and it's an Audi, which is one of the, the best cars that, that's been there at the mountain, um, yeah, he can absolutely take it out. But um it's just going to depend on whether they can be put in that position. Um, you think that they're going to lose laps to the to the leaders at some stage during the race, so it's about getting that back sometime in the race. And as we've mentioned before, one hour to go in the race, you cannot get your lap back unless you do it through pure strategy rather than the lucky dog. So if Chaz is two laps down with an hour and a half to go and gets one lap back, but then can't get the next lap back, well, it's going to be it's going to be hard for him to come back and and be an outright contender. So it's just going to depend on what happens in the first 10 hours of the race. But you put him in, in a position to win and, yeah, he'll, he'll give every uh, he'll give it every shake to try and win. So that's going to be the, the key thing about it all. But, yeah, if he's in the top five with an hour to go, you'd back him to, to have a shot at winning. I definitely agree that this car is, is probably the favourite for the silver class. In terms of outright results, just not quite sure. I, I think that... The performance of Liam Talbot, we know that he's a very good AB driver. Fraser Ross up against some of the other pro drivers, I'm just not quite sure how they'll go, but it will be interesting if Chaz is somewhere near the pointy end heading into the last hour. Car number 66, the Daytona Sports Cars, Sin R1 for Ben Schutz, Shane Woodman, and one of our good mates, Dylan Thomas, who's had lots of experience and success in Lots of different categories, including Toyota 86s and more recently TA2. Dave, I'm going to get you to talk a bit about this car because I know that you've had experience actually racing against it on track in the Victorian sports car series, but it's powered by a massive 7 liter V8 engine. It, it does. So Sin Cars is a small constructor based out of Eastern Europe. Uh, the car is 
built out of uh, steel tubing with a fiberglass body. Think of it as a, a, a Lotus Elise or a Lotus Exige on steroids, and you're kind of in the ballpark. Uh, they do make a, a road legal version of the car that's powered by a variety of Chevrolet LS engines. Uh, they do a track day version. They also have a version that's uh, uh, SRO GD4 homologated that runs a smaller engine with a with a smaller throttle opening. Uh, the car in question is one that I've been running against in Victorian sports cars. It's homologated as a Group 2B uh, production sports car in Victoria, which means that it doesn't have to run with any BOP restrictions. So they've run, um, you know, with full throttle opening, with full horsepower. Um, it runs on smaller tyres than a GT3 car, so sort of GT4 size tyres. Uh, and it runs uh, the the same Albans transaxle that we had in supercars for a number of years when they switched to the car of the future in 2013. Motec Electronics uh, LS V8 engine. Uh, because the car's running in the invited category, it's sort of running up against a, a mishmash of who's who, uh, but certainly a, a car that's had a lot of local development. Um, it, it ran and managed to win uh, qualify on pole and win every race of the Victorian Sports Car Championship in 2022. Uh, did it, I think, on only two sets of tyres, if that. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what it does switching from the Yokohama as it's traditionally run on to the Pirellis that it's required to run on as part of the event. They do have a little bit of history running on the Pirelli. Uh, ben Schutz does a lot of development driving work. Dylan Thomas, hundreds and hundreds of laps around that place. And, of course, Shane Woodman, uh, very experienced in sports sedans as well. So he's used to having a lot of horsepower under his right foot. Um, certainly, you know, for this car, it's all about making it to the finish, like we saw with the uh, with the Daytona and the Viper in, in years past from uh, from Richard Bendel and the team at Daytona Sports Cars. Uh, they're there for the experience. Uh, they want to showcase what the car can do and certainly uh, a, a podium in class and, and a really good uh, display of performance uh, would certainly be a feather in the cap for sim cars out of Eastern Europe. I'm going to put it out there. This is my tip to win the invitational class. I just reckon that... With the straight line performance that the car has, the fact that you've got three solid drivers uh, and more just down to the car and its performance levels, I reckon that this is probably the car that's in the box seat for victory in the Invitational class. Well, it's either going to be them or probably one of the Mark cars. So I'd say that, yeah, it's either these guys or the Mark cars that, that will win the Invitational and you'd lean towards the Daytona if it can last the 12 hours and be reliable. And as Dave said, it uses its tyres really well. So... That's, a, that's always an advantage around the mountain with strategy. So, yeah, you'd think that ever, if everything can go to plan with reliability, these guys can certainly be uh, taking out the class. So from the car that we think is going to win the Invitational class to a car that is most definitely a contender for outright victory, it's the all-pro Audi Sport machine with three international factory Audi drivers. Christopher Hasa, Patrick Niederhauser making his first visit to Mount Panorama, and Mattia Drudy routing out the driver lineup. Shane, this car definitely one of the favourites for outright victory. Absolutely, and Audi got a point to prove after last year, where they had pretty much the fastest car, but then um, because of, of a balance before of performance adjustment the night before the race. But that that's no excuses. You still got to win on your merit on the day. And but Audi just yeah had multiple issues throughout the 12 hour last year and weren't able to to be successful so they've got a point to prove this year they will certainly want to bounce back and uh, this combination can absolutely do it um three credential drivers who can all do really well again it's just going to be down to the car and again the balance of performance which i'm surprised if we haven't really spoken much of throughout the whole podcast so far but that's going to be the, the crucial thing and particularly with qualifying 
we saw in the last couple of years, if you show your hand in qualifying, nine times out of 10, the balance of performance changes overnight into the next day. So will we see the, the true performance of these cars in qualifying or will people hold things back, making sure that they can have the balance of performance going their way uh, in the 12 hour? But you think that if everything goes to plan without with this Audi combination, that, yeah, certainly that they are an outright uh, proposition. Well, it's, uh, this is Audi's single bullet in the chamber for the pro class for Audi. Of course, Audi have been a stalwart of the event since moving to the GD3 rules for 2011. Uh, they were one of the first international teams to come out uh, with efforts from Phoenix Racing, uh, based in the Nürburgring. Uh, after losing WRT, of course, one of their uh, renowned international teams, um, they've put the three hired guns in the one car, pro effort, um, I think this is also the debut of the Evo 2 kit uh, for the Audi R8, which wouldn't have been eligible for the pre preceding year's event either. So um, the Audi R8, of course, debuted in 2014, 2015. It's been upgraded twice. Um, it is a, a remarkably adept package, really uh, accessible by amateur or non-professional drivers. Uh, but certainly the pros know how to get every inch of performance uh, out of the car. MPC will be looking to, uh, I guess, um, uh, make up for their, you know, very small errors that, that cost them a chance at outright victory in last year's event. Uh, and certainly with an all-pro lineup like that, it's hard to argue with this car being in contention, uh, providing it's on the lead lap in the last into the race. In previous years, the weakness of the Audi has been a straight line performance. And I can think back to, to about 2016 when I remember... It would have been, I think, Laurent Vantor was very vocal about the fact that it didn't matter how quick the Audi was across the top of the mountain, it didn't have enough straight line speed to be able to overtake people, which made it an okay car to drive in qualifying, but quite tricky to race because you can't really pass people in GT cars across the top of the mountain. Since then, you would have to say that they have gone some way to evening up the balance of performance to give the Audi maybe a bit more straight line performance and even it out with a bit less corner speed, I suppose you could say, compared to some of the other GT3 cars. But certainly it does still seem that the Audi strength is across the top of the mountain, whereas the Mercedes, for example, is probably a better package up and down the mountain. Would you agree, Dave? Look, Bathurst is a very unique circuit. There's very few circuits in the world that you spend such a long period of time at full throttle. Uh, without any sort of lateral load on the car. Um, the GD3 manufacturers are free to build the cars whichever way they want, and the SRO and the FIA will BOP them to a, a lap time window that they reckon is correct. And it's trying to, you can, if I refer back to my previous comment, you can please all the people some of the time, some of the people all the time, but you can't please all the people all the time. Uh, I have no doubt that uh, regardless of whether it's a minor or a major player, uh, in the outcome of the event. Uh, it won't stop any of the drivers pointing the finger at the big BOP bear in the room as opposed to focusing on their own performance as a team or setup. Um, it is, you know, it is one of the, um, you know, things we reluctantly have to have in world sports car racing um, to allow this variety of platforms to be able to be competitive with one another without teams spending astronomical amounts of money on development trying to make the cars faster uh, every event. So, um, you know, Audi has come up with a car that is uh, fairly widely accepted. They've sold hundreds of, hundreds of them worldwide. Um, it's accessible. It's reliable. 
but for whatever reason at Bathurst, it just never quite seems to be the thing to have for the, you know, the straight line handling. And as we've seen uh, in years past, if you can make your speed up and down the hill, it's an awful lot easier to get in front of people and block them over the top of the hill than it is to overtake them across the top. So from one of the front-running Audis, we move on to one of the front-running Mercedes. In fact, the car that won the race last year, Kenny Habul, Jules Gounon, and Lucas Stoltz. And in fact, Jules Gounon is shooting for three Bathurst 12-hour wins on the trot because he won with Bentley in 2020 as well. Interestingly enough, it's entered in the pro class despite the fact that Kenny Habul is a bronze driver. So they could have gone in the pro-am class However, by nominating to go in the pro class, they give themselves a bit more strategic flexibility because the minimum driver requirement for the bronze driver of three hours, at least one hour of which must be in the second half of the race, no longer applies. So, in fact, if I read the regs correctly, the maximum cumulative permissible driving time per driver is 340 minutes. Multiply that by two, that takes you to 680 minutes. It's a 720-minute race. So by my reckoning, if Jules Gounon and Lucas Stoltz each do their maximum driving time, it means that Kenny Cabal only has to do 40 minutes in the car. It'll be, it would be a brave team principle that would, uh, that would only put Kenny in for, for 40 minutes if he's the one paying the bills. But to maximise chances of winning the race outright, you want him to be in the car for the least amount of time, don't you? Possibly. I mean, Kenny certainly lived up to his ambition of winning the, the winning a Bathurst endurance race by taking out uh, last year's edition of the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12 hour uh, to come back this year and have a crack at uh, at pro. Certainly, that's a that, that's a big game. But we have seen it before. We've seen uh, drives and Yims of WeatherTech series uh, as well step up from GTD to GTD Pro or run in GTLM rather than GTDs, um, or they've run in GTE Pro in the Le Mans 24-hour because they figured they had more chance uh, being one of six cars than they did being one of 12 or 15 cars. So at the end of the day, it's it's Kenny and it's his money. He can spend it the way that he wants. And if this is the way that he wants to, to have a stab at the Bass's 12-hour, full power to him and, uh, and full credit to the team if they manage to pull that one off. Um, I would wager that he'll do a lot more than 40 minutes in the car because uh, the other two drivers in that car would be pretty spent by the end of 12 hours if they've done almost all the driving themselves. What do you reckon, Shane? Can they go back-to-back, this combination, or do you think that up against the all-pro combinations it might be a bridge too far? Well, we've seen with previous history in both the 1,000 and the 12-hour, when you're going for history or you're trying to go back-to-back, and in Gunon's situation, it's back-to-back-to-back, Nine times out of ten, it usually doesn't happen. Um, in, in, in the Bathurst 1000, uh, I don't think we've had a back-to-back winner for a very long time. And in the 12-hour, no one's done three in a row in history. So based on that evidence, you go no. But um, they've got all the ingredients like last year to be successful. Yes, we've got probably a stronger field this year. Well, not probably. We definitely do have a stronger field this year. Um, obviously, more manufacturers are coming in. So they've got more competition um, up against them this year, but I mean, if if you can get if if what you're saying is true and you, you can get Kenny in and out of the car as quickly as possible, and you've got two gun drivers pretty much being able to race the majority of the race, the boys will be fit. They'll they'll know what to do with double stints and triple stints and everything else. 
you couldn't rule these guys out. Um, they, they'll definitely be a, a, a top five contender. And all the ingredients are there for them to do it. It's just going to be depending on whether um, the Mercedes is as quick as what it was last year compared to the other manufacturers. If it is, well, they can absolutely take it out. But I'm just going to side with history here and go, probably not. Car number 77 is another Mercedes-Benz being run by a front-running team, the Crafts Bamboo Racing Operation, which finished second outright last year with their Mercedes in the hands of Daniel Junk, Della, Maro Engel and Kevin C. It's a slightly different driver lineup this year. Daniel Junkadella is back. He'll be joined by Nicky Katzberg. The third driver in this car was supposed to be Lucas Auer. However, unfortunately, he suffered a broken back in a nasty crash in practice for the Daytona 24-hour, which has left the Craft Bamboo Racing operation scrambling for a third driver, which it'll be interesting to see who they can come up with to slot into that car. But Craft Bamboo Racing, like I said, second outright last year. They were on the podium with an Aston Martin in 2015 as well. In last year's race, we'll remember how they used that very interesting strategy. It seems very weird to us at the time where they were pitting at the end of every safety car period, but what it meant was they were able to tick off their nine compulsory pit stops very quickly, which gave them strategic flexibility in the second half of the race. And uh, in the end, they finished not that far behind the outright winning Sun Energy 1 Mercedes. I suppose, guys, that the big question for this car is who is going to be the third driver. Um, You you would think that they would be able to get somebody decent, given that it is a, a Mercedes AMG factory-supported operations, starting with you, Shane. How do you see this car going? Yeah, to me, these guys are the favourites when it comes to Mercedes and the, and the entries that they have in this year's race. So, uh, and Jude Goodella has won races for fun. He, he won last year's uh, 24 hours of Spa and the eight hours of Indianapolis and then finished second uh, at the 12 hours. So you'd, you'd expect these guys to be definitely in contention. It will be interesting to see who the third driver is. You'd expect probably after the Daytona 24-hour, which I think is still going as we speak. Um, that Whoever, I guess, comes out from that, um, able to race, is fit enough to come to, to, to Australia to, to do it, will probably get named. So it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out. But, yeah, this combination, to me, is the favourite. The drivers are, are very credentialed. They know what they're doing. And, um, yeah, you'd expect nothing more from these guys than a top three finish and, and being right in contention throughout the whole day. Well, certainly Mercedes has got quite a number of drivers on its payroll that it could uh, call in. Uh, I have a suspicion they're probably one of the drivers that's currently spending quite a lot of their time going round and round the banked oval of Daytona. They might be uh, getting an extra flight to Australia rather than going home to Europe, if it's indeed one of the drivers I think it might be. All I can let you know is that my phone hasn't been ringing off the hook with people offering me drives at late notice. Unfortunately, it looks like I'll only be driving a desk desk and a radio in race control this year and won't be behind the wheel. Um, certainly, international team, well-renowned. Uh, they're effectively the you know the Asian version of Triple Eight in terms of their Mercedes-Benz association. Uh, they haven't had as much GT racing in Asia to get up to and uh, showcase their talents. But certainly, with that driver lineup, with their history at the race, um, certainly a car that uh, will be in the hunt, and I'd say top five, definitely. Uh, it'll just be a matter of all the other cars that want to be in that top five as well. From international Mercedes to locally run Mercedes, Triple Eight Race Engineering running two Mercedes in the 12-hour this year. Car number 99 will run in the Pro-Am class. 
and it's going to be shared by Jamie Wincup, Richie Stanaway, and Prince Jeffrey Ibrahim. And Dave, I suppose the big thing with this car is that Triple Eight are putting Richie Stanaway in. No doubt to get him some extra seat time before he teams up with Shane Van Gisbergen for the Supercars Enduros later this year. But uh, this is why it's probably not got the pace to be an outright race winning combination. Certainly capable of achieving a decent overall result given the, the experience of Win Cup in particular at Mount Panorama. I think a lot of people have got to make sure they don't sell Richie Stanaway short. Before he returned to Australia and had a crack at supercars, this was someone who'd run and won races in GP2, the step below Formula 1. And he'd also been an Aston Martin factory GT driver in the GTE or the GT2 specification machines. So he understands working as part of a team, compromising on setup to ensure that it suits more than one driver. He understands the strategy. Uh, perhaps hasn't had the, the media savvy or the um, uh, the likability that we like out of a lot of Australian or Antipodean drivers. But certainly we've seen a little bit of his redemption arc with the Boost Mobile uh, the Boost Mobile wildcard with Greg Murphy in last year's edition of the Bathurst 1000. Uh, obviously there was a lot of talk about uh, um, uh, Peter from Boost Mobile, Peter Adderton, uh, basically wanting to be the 26 car on the grid. If nothing else, it's a front-engine V8 uh, two-door car with Boost Mobile on the side and Richie Stanaway on board. Uh, and, of course, Prince Jeffrey Ibrahim. Let's not discount the efforts that uh, that he has put in uh, to improving himself as a, as a non-professional driver over the last couple of years, has done a lot of work with Triple Eight uh, over, the, over the course of the last couple of years. Uh, however, Triple Eight has kind of run out of chassis, so to speak. So I'm not sure how many of the cars that they are running are the ones that they've had previously or where they've had to get new cars flown in from overseas because in the last few months of, of 20, uh, 2022, we saw a number of uh, 888-run Mercedes get taken out of contention uh, with very severe wall impacts that, that might have done uh, structural damage to the chassis. Um, but, of course, well-credentialed organisation, uh, drivers that know what they're doing, uh, definitely one of my tips for the Pro-Am podium. I think the biggest thing about this combination is can they make it to the finish line? Triple uh, Eight over the last couple of races in the GT endurance races have not made it to the finish line or they've um, wrecked their cars before the start of the race. So that's going to be the, the key and critical thing. As Dave mentioned, Dave mentioned before, um, yeah, they've had some really barren times with, with their cars and entries over the last six months and have had major, uh, major incidents that have almost, well, I think they've destroyed two cars in the process. So um, it's going to be critical that they make it to the grid, survive, and then see how we go. Um, I'm in two minds about this combination. Yes, Winkup's quick. Yes, Stanway's quick. But Winkup in particular, we've seen him struggle when it comes to GT racing compared to racing in a supercar. And we saw that last year where Brock Feeney came in um, to the team, did really well, and then replaced Winkup in certain events. And they sort of looked to him to be the leader in the team rather than um, Winkup. So... To me, this combination's got a couple of question marks about it, so I don't rate it probably as highly as what you guys do in terms of a top three finish. I think they're just outside that, and I think, to me, they're probably pushing for, for, an, for a finish outside the top ten as well. Um, I just have a few queries about whether they can get to the finish line, and while Stanaway's credentials are certainly there for everyone to see, the facts are he hasn't been in a GT car 
in a race situation for a few years as well. So that's going to be something that he needs to adjust to pretty quickly. Yes, he's a talented steerer, but it will take time for him to adjust and how quickly he can do that will be critical to see how the team goes over the weekend. How about within the Pro-Am class? I think, I think they're outside the top three. I know I think Dave's got him in, inside the top three. I think they're just outside. And I think the other the other thing as well is the, a lot of the focus for Triple Eight will be on the other entry that we'll get to in just a second. Um, and then I think they've got a couple of other entries that they're looking after this weekend as well. So they've got a really busy program. So I'm not saying that they won't take, they won't neglect this team and not pay, uh, put much attention to them. But when you're racing multiple cars and you have all your resources spread out over different things, um, sometimes preferences can happen. So, yeah, I'd probably lean towards them being outside the top three in the, in the Pro-Am class. I think there's a few other combinations that I rate higher mm. than them, and I also question whether they can actually make it to the finish line given yeah. what's happened in, in recent times. <laughs> you, you you are a tough marker, Jonesy. I, I probably have them a little bit higher than that. All right. Anyway, we'll keep moving on. We are into the three-digit numbers. The, in fact, the final car in the silver class on our entry list, car 101, which is the second of the Volante Rosso Motorsport Mercedes for Ross Polarkas, who had a really good year in GT World Challenge Australia last year, and he will be joined by Josh Hunt, who's had a long association with Chris Papadopoulos and the Volante Rosso Motorsport squad. Kevin C., who was very strong at the Bathurst 12-hour last year, and also from Hong Kong, Jonathan Huey, joining that team as well. They're running in the silver class. You'd have to say they're probably not an outright contender based on the strength of the driving lineup, but uh, Ross Polarkis, given that last year was his first year competing in GT competition, was one of the standout performers in GT World Challenge Australia. So really looking forward to seeing how he goes in the 12-hour. Shane, what do you reckon? Yeah, it'll be intriguing to see how this entry goes. I, I think there's a couple of other entries that are stronger on paper than these guys. But um, the aim of the game with Silva will be to keep out of trouble, um, try and stay as close to Lee Lap as possible and, um, yeah, work your way through the, the field throughout the day. So um, these, this combination can definitely finish inside the top three. And if everything goes everything goes well, they could certainly be in the top 15 overall at the end of the race. So that's probably the, the two aims for the team. And, yeah, hopefully for, for their sake, they can uh, perform like that and get, get into those positions by the end of the race. Survival, survival, survival. Uh, again, huge kudos to Ross and the team at Volante Rosso on their sort of debut season in 2022, learning the car, learning the tracks. Uh, this effort, I think, you know, again, keep an eye on the mirrors, stay out of people's way, don't get involved in any fights you don't have to. Don't make any mistakes, make it to the end and then be in contention for a good result in class at the end. Uh, I say certainly um, not a not a threat to the to the outright uh, podium, uh, but certainly, you know, a good strong finish in the silver class, uh, something they can hang their hat on and go, OK, we did that box ticked. Now let's work on building into the 2023 season uh, for, for Palakis and the team at Volante Rosso. Ditto those comments, Dave. Car number triple one, the last of our invitational class runners. It's a Mark One Mazda 4, Darren Curry, Grant Donaldson, and the owner of Mark Cars Australia, Jeff Taunton. I think a lot of the comments that we made about the Mark II car for Kasulki, Morale, and McLeod also apply to this car. Um, in this case, it's really just a trio of recreational races. Again, I think for this car, it really is just a case of staying out of trouble and seeing where they end up at the end of the day, Dave. 
we've certainly seen a lot of upgrades come through. So when Mark debuted the, the Mark II, the, the car that's bodied like a, a current shape Mustang. Uh, when they debuted that, that was when they'd announced they'd upgraded the engine from sort of five litres to 5.2, gone from sort of 500 horsepower to 600 horsepower. Uh, they went to a more GT style. They'd staggered the tyre fitment, had you know basically GD3 size tyres on the car. Uh, the Mark One, of course, is a lot more like a V8 supercar. It's square setup, so same tyre on all four corners, uh, you know, traditional front mid-engine design. Um, but of course, Mark Cars has been rolling out these updates uh, to their customer cars available uh, through the last couple of years, particularly while people didn't have a lot of racing going on. So, you know, it's a car that's, you know, well-developed, well-resourced in terms of spare parts. Uh, these are the, the engines, you know, Ryan McLeod tells stories of going to do, you know, two 24-hour races back-to-back, including all the practice and qualifying, and all they had to do to them between them was an oil change. Uh, you know, the engines are super reliable. Um, you know, it's the kind of engine we're going to see running in the Gen 3 of supercars in 2023. Uh, really good engine platform, really well-designed uh, chassis from Pace Innovations, uh, you know, brakes from Brembo, transaxle from Albans, um, all of the really good endurance componentries in the car. And this one will be about keeping an eye on the mirrors, you know, not getting caught up in any GD3 battles and just trying to be there at the end. Uh, we know that the Mark cars can take a pounding. Uh, and these drivers certainly know what they're in for. They do, and I think they'll approach it with a very sensible mindset, which is what you want for a 12-hour race. But, Shane, even in the invitational class, I just don't think that this car's quite got the pace. Yeah, I think it's just going to fall short compared to the other Mark car and the Daytona um, the Daytona entry that we mentioned before. So, yeah, I, I think a top three finish in the invitational class is the aim for these guys. And then, yeah, just seeing how far they can get in term, see how far they can get up in in terms of positions uh, with the uh, with the outright class. So, yeah, just keeping out of trouble, surviving, and getting to the end. From car triple one, we move to car triple two. The Scott Taylor Motorsport Mercedes AMG GT3. Last year, these four drivers shared a Porsche Carrera Cup car, and they ended up bringing it home inside the top ten outright, which was a good effort. So for this year, they've stepped up into an outright GT3 spec car to run in the Pro-Am class. Craig Lowndes, Alex Davidson, Jeff Emery and Scott Taylor are the four drivers. Super experienced combination. What they might lack in raw speed, they certainly make up for in experience and, and race smarts. And I've got this car in my outright top 10. I, I just think that with the mentality, the approach that they'll take to the race, they'll know how to stay out of trouble They'll have really, really strong race craft. I think that, uh, yeah, they'll, they'll be on for an outright top 10 finisher and somewhere towards the pointy end in the Pro-Am class as well. Jonesy, where do you have them ranked for the race? Well, I think if you look at the the drivers in the in the team and their reliability in, in either the 12-hour or the 1,000, it's really good. I mean... Alex Davison, up until last year's Bathurst 1000, had a 100% completion record, and then we all gave him the jinx, and he finally failed to finish his first one. So this combination knows how to get to the finish line, and that's going to be critical in this race, just getting to the finish line. I'm not sure of a top 10 finish. I just don't think if there's enough cars that survive until the end and, and it's it's based on outright pace, I don't think this car with outright pace in terms of the driver's that they have can get there. Um, but if if the attrition is high, 
and these guys know how to get to the end, then absolutely they can finish inside the top 10. And that's what they did last year. They just kept on going round and round and round and everyone else fell by the wayside and they finished inside the top 10. So they'll be aiming to do exactly the same, hoping that that can transition into a um, outright class win in Pro-Am and maybe a top 10 finish in outright. And if they do that, I think the four boys will be really happy for their weekend. I, I would echo Shane's comments. It's the kind of car that, you know, with due respect to Scott Taylor, one of the uh, the biggest supporters of motorsport in Australia, he'll be in the car, I reckon, as early as possible to get his driving time out of the way. I think it's a minimum of 180 minutes um, for a bronze driver in a in a pro-am car. So, and they'll probably do 80 uh, his 80 minutes and no more, no less, uh, after the halfway point of the race. And, uh, you know, they'll get Scott tucked away and then um, have him watch on from the garage. And I'd certainly say with uh, Craig Lowndes in the uh, in the box seat at the end of the race, um, a fairly good safe pair of hands to push in the Mercedes-AMG GT to its limit um, in the closing stages of a 12-hour race. Well said, Dave. All right, we're definitely in the triple numbers at the moment because we've had triple one, we've had triple two, and now we will talk about car number triple seven, which is the final of our Pro-Am class runners the Ben Motorsport Park Audi R8 with Yasser Shahin, last year's GT World Challenge Australian champion, teaming up with a couple of factory Audi guns from overseas in the form of Chris May's former two-time winner of the Bathurst 12-hour and also Ricardo Feller. If you want a Pro-Am class car that's capable of challenging for a sneaky outright victory, this is definitely one of the ones, Dave. Absolutely. And in the same way that we rate Brad Schumacher as one of the, the highest performing gentleman drivers, certainly you put Yasser Shahin in that category as well. Very dedicated to his racing and improving his performance. Incredibly fit uh, for a non-professional driver. Um, and certainly we've seen him team up with a variety of professionals over the years. Um, if you'd have seen this combination as last year's event, where there was only a Pro-Am class, instantly you would have said this thing was an outright you know, you know, P1, P2, P3 competitor. Obviously, given the fact it's not a complete pro lineup, I'd put it in the same boat as some of the other ones where if they're if they're clever with how they manage the non-professional drive time, if they stay on the lead lap, if they've got, you know, Christopher Mees who's got a bone to pick with this race, if they've got Mees in the car at the end of 12 hours, providing that the car and the BOP works out well and it's got good track position, absolutely a car that, that could be a contender for an outright uh, outright podium. Shane, do we say that this car is the favourite for the Pro-Am class? Well, I can't speak on behalf of you two, but to me, this is the favourite for for the Pro-Am class. So I, I have these guys as number one. So uh, Dave mentioned before, Christopher Mees, if he's got a bone to pick or if he's got um, a bee in his bonnet, watch out because he will drive that car to yeah <laughs> every extreme to, to get a result so uh, and I look forward to that I think that's going to be one of the the highlights of this week of the weekend coming up but it's going to be it, it's a combination that as long as you can get the Shaheen hours out of the way and you don't lose too much time to the to the pro competitors um, this combination could do anything and it could be a, a sneaky outright proposition as well so yeah I look forward to see how these guys go um, and and yeah, I, I have them rated really highly in both the Pro-Am class and a sneaky for an outright as well. That leaves us with three combinations left in the field, all of which are Pro-class cars. And in car number 888, which is the second of the 888-run Mercedes, we've got Shane Van Gisbergen, the reigning supercars champion, 
and also former Bathurst 12-hour winner, Brock Feeney, his regular Supercars teammate, will line up alongside him, as will the overseas driver in that car, Maximilian Gertz. And this car, you would have to say, is one of the outright contenders. But last year, when it got to the final sprint to the chequered flag and we had the three Mercedes all fighting it out for victory, Triple Eight car with Van Gisbergen at the wheel didn't quite seem to have the outright pace of of the other two cars that they were chasing, the Crafts Bamboo Racing Mercedes and the Sun Engine 1 Mercedes. Shane, is this something that they can turn around this year to make sure that they've got the speed for that final sprint to the finish? Well, based on previous form of Triple Eight and Triple Eight as a team, the answer is no. They've had that issue for multiple years. Um, so whether they can do it this year, well, that remains to be seen. And it's funny because... Sun Energy last year won the race. Yes, it was Triple Eight prepared and Triple Eight run, but it was a different team that ended up winning it. But if you look at Triple Eight as a team, they've never won the 12 hour before. The drivers of Triple Eight have won races before Craig Lowndes, um, Shane Van Giesbergen, and Jamie Winkup, but they've never done it as a Triple Eight combination or a team. So can they do that this year? Well, that's the million dollar question because. For some weird reason, when it comes to the 12 hour, they've just never been in that final hour window. Whereas if you look at the, the 1000, they're always in that final hour window. But the 12 hour, they just can't seem to replicate it, whether that's through the car itself, because they've, they've driven Mercedes for the last few years, or whether that's through other factors, we just don't know. But that's been their Achilles heel in the last few years. This combination, though, has every opportunity to break that. Um, has every opportunity to win the race. But, um, yeah, it's whether they can have that car in the last hour window that finally delivers them that that 12-hour title. Um, That's going to be the critical component. What what I will mention with with this combination, everyone will look at Brock Feeney and go, he might be the weak link when it comes to to the two other drivers. Don't think that for a second. His performances last year, particularly in the last half of the year, um, with, a, with a GT car was excellent and he's only going to get better. He's, he's only like 19 or 20 years old. He's going to get better and better and better and this could be one of those 12 hours where he, like a Matt Campbell before, he takes um, the opportunity with both hands and, and really shows how good he is. So um, this combination is very strong. But the question mark is going to be whether that car can be in that window at the crucial period of the race. Dave, do you reckon the car can be in the window at that crucial period of the race to deliver Triple Eight victory? Shane Van Gisbergen, you never doubt the cheese. Um, I mean, certainly we all love the theatre of him driving a supercar where he's changing the, the brake bias and the anti-roll bar settings between every corner of a circuit. Um, he doesn't have that availability uh, to him in a GT3 car, which I think is one of the reasons why I've seen him not be as dominant in this form of racing is because he doesn't have all the tools available to him to to set himself apart from the other drivers that don't operate on that same mental, um, tactical level as he does. Um, He would be a brave person that discounts this car from an outright podium. Um, I do know that we have to pick an outright three, um, and certainly this is one of my outright three for the race. Um, Maxi Gertz, phenomenal phenomenal Mercedes factory driver. Um, Shane Van Gisbergen can do things with a car that defy logic sometimes. And Brock Feeney, everyone's had this, oh, I'm not so sure about you. He has ticked every box and met every metric that's been placed in front of him. And to come away with that victory that he did, 
in the last race of the 2022 season of supercars certainly stamped his authority going i'm here i belong i can operate at this level and i think it speaks uh, volumes that's that uh, that triple eight has put him in with shane van gisbergen with maxi gertz in the pro car not in the pro-am car i think that's a ringing endorsement from the management at triple eight I agree with you, and I, I think that as he gets more experience in GT cars, he's only going to get better. And certainly in the early part of his career, we saw that he drove a variety of different types of cars. Obviously, after a very successful go-kart career, he spent time in Toyota rated sixes before moving up to supercars, and he's still young enough that he can adapt to different driving techniques. So I think that Feeney will, will be a very solid performer in that combination. We've got a number of former Carrera Cup Australia champions in the field, and one of them also happens to be a Bathurst 12-hour winner. I'm talking about Matt Campbell, who guided his team to a tremendous victory in the 2019 edition of the Bathurst 12-hour, and he is back for another crack in a Porsche for Manti Racing. He'll be joined by Matteo Gemini and Thomas Prining, in a, another car that you would have to describe as one of the outright contenders, Dave. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the big bullets in Porsche's gun, um, you know, to have Matt Campbell back on board, who, of course, had that magnificent overtake of, uh, of the Aston Martin in the late stages of that race that you mentioned beforehand. Um, you know, this is the last gasp, shall we say, for the, uh, the, the Generation 2 991 Porsche, all new cars coming for the 2023 season and, of course, the next year's edition of the uh, Liquid Molly Bathurst 12-hour. So, effectively, they don't have to worry about saving the car. Like, they can push this thing as hard as they want. They can abandon all caution. They don't have to worry about keeping it for a season. Um, now, I say that slightly tongue-in-cheek because, you know, these are very expensive race cars. But when you've got two Platinums on board in Campbell and Jaminet and a Gold and Thomas Prining on board, um, with the backing from Manti Racing, which is effectively the Porsche factory GT team these days, it would be a brave person to discount this car from an outright podium. Shane, Matt Campbell has established himself as a global superstar of Porsche racing, so it's going to be terrific to see him back at Mount Panorama demonstrating his craft. Matt Campbell in a Porsche in a last hour Bathurst in a 12-hour is some of the most electrifying racing you'll ever see uh, in Australia and, and if not the world. Um, he is a superstar and it's great that it's great for the it's great that overseas Australian drivers can come back home and race in the 12 hour. I think we need to emphasize that a lot because for, for 35, 40 weeks of the year, we lose our overseas drivers to Europe, to America, to wherever, so they can obviously race and, and um, further their careers. So, so any opportunity we get to see them here in Australia and to see them in, in what is our biggest endurance international race is, is great to see. So um, the last um, two of the three drivers in this combination finished fourth in 2020 and obviously Campbell in 2019 won, um, won the race. So... You cannot rule out Porsche and you cannot rule out this combination from doing really well at the mountain. So, And as Dave said, um, if they've got nothing to lose with this car and, and this car is the last one of the last times that they're going to race the car and they've got nothing to lose and they can throw everything at it, well, watch out. Um, this combination can certainly um, be a, a top three contender and even an outright contender. And I have them probably 
if they're not in my top three, they're fourth. So um, I, I have them rated really highly this year. Here, here, and Matt Campbell, let's not forget as well that he's going to be stepping up to the premier class of the World Endurance Championship, driving a Porsche 963 this year in what will be one of the outright contending cars for the Le Mans 24 hours. So, so well-deserved. He, he's a super talented driver. He's had to work hard for every opportunity that's come his way, Matt Campbell, but it would be a, a feel-good story, you would have to say, if he was to chalk up another win in the Bathurst 12-hour. One last car on our entry list, and that's car triple nine, the Grupa Emirate Racing at Mercedes-AMG GT3 for Maro Engel, Mikhail Grenier and Raffaele Marcello and the Grupa M Racing Team, a team that has previously visited the podium at the Bathurst 12-hour back in 2019 when they finished in third position. And this is another car that you would have to put on the list of outright contenders, Shane. Uh, 100%. Um, these, these are, it's either this Mercedes combination or the 77 uh, car uh, as your leading Mercedes combination for, for the weekend. So, um, yeah, I mean, the, the three drivers are, are all class classy drivers. They all know what they're doing. And Rafael Marcello in particular, he's finished twice, twice. He's, he's finished second twice, I should say, at, at the Bathurst 12-hour, and he's been very close on a couple of occasions. So you think if anyone's due for a Bathurst 12-hour win, it's probably him. Obviously, they don't hand out uh, wins at the 12-hour because people are due, but... Certainly, um, Marcelli will be one of the ones to look out for this weekend, and and this combination is is absolutely in the top three, and um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go very close to winning outright. Dave Maro Engel is another driver who has been in contention for Bathurst twelve hour victories in the past, so um, good to see him back in Australia as well, behind the wheel of a front running Mercedes. I guess we consider him an honorary Aussie after his stint. Uh, behind the wheel of a uh, Erebus E63 supercar in 2013 uh, during the early stages of the Erebus motorsport campaign in supercars. Um, you know, Group M, massive respect to the organisation, uh, has been competitive in every major international jury that they've gone to, be it in Europe, in Asia or America. Um, three pro drivers, um, absolutely a Mercedes pro effort. Um, but the question, can it knock off the other pro efforts um, from Mercedes, uh, that'll be the big question. Um, definitely don't ca- count this car out. I do. You do occasionally sometimes see with international efforts. Occasionally they get caught up by some of the uh, the quirks of the uh, the Bathurst 12 hour, particularly the restart procedures. We've often seen international teams um, not reminding their drivers they have to stop weaving uh, when the lights go out in the safety car or when they try to overlap a car across the control line, um, which of course can lead to a penalty straight away. Um, so, so long as they can avoid any of the pitfalls of being an international team and not being so familiar with how we go racing in Australia, um, certainly a, a, an outright outright compet- contender for the top five. Well, that brings us to the business end of the podcast, gentlemen. So this is the stage where we all put in our fearless predictions for this year's race. So from each of you two, starting with Shane, I'd like your top three finishes, please. Uh, it's tough because I probably got about six combinations that I can absolutely put there. All right, we'll start with the triple nine. The last car we just actually spoke about, I, I think they will be in the top three. I was, I would put the seventy-seven in, but with with doubts over who the third driver is, I'm probably going to just skip them. But say that 
Um, depending on who that third person is, they can be in the top three, but I'm going to leave them out. Uh, I'm going to put the 74 Audi in there as one of the top threes, and then I'm going to go for the 32 BMW uh, to round out my top three. Dave, your top three predictions. Uh, the 912 Manti EMA Porsche. Uh, never never bet against Porsche in an international endurance race. Uh, the number 888, the super cheap auto racing uh, Shane Van Gisbergen, and Brock Feeney, Maxi Gertz, uh, Mercedes GT, GT3. Um, and just just for a bit of variety, uh, also the number 32, uh, Team WRT, BMW M4, um, three German brands, um, a lot of German drivers, um, a lot of German uh, research and development and factory backing behind those teams. Um, certainly they are, they on paper appear to me to be the strongest combinations uh, to finish on the podium from those three brands. So my top three predictions are car number 77, the Crafts Bamboo Racing Mercedes. I'm confident they will find a suitable replacement for Lucas Auer to team up with Daniel Junkadella and Nicky Katzberg. I'm also going to tip the number 32 WRT BMW. We are liking that car and it's such a well-credentialed driver lineup. But I've just got this feeling that we are going to see a Pro-Am car on the outright podium. And I have a feeling it'll be car number 777 with Chris Fermi's Ricardo Feller and Yasser Shahin. So I'm going to tip them for an outright podium finish in the 12-hour. So that brings us to the end of the Checkered Flag Chat Bathurst 12-hour preview podcast 2023 edition Shane and Dave, it's been a great pleasure having you on board to analyse everything that we think is going to happen in this year's race. Any final thoughts before we sign off? I'd really like to, uh, you know, thank the organisers for putting on such a an amazing event. I'd like to thank all of the fans who are going to be turn up in their droves. Uh, special shout out to the Shakedown crew who will be uh, meeting up at the Ox and uh, all of the support, passionate supporters for sports car racing, uh, to the international teams that have made the effort to come down under um, in what's been a very trying logistical situation. We really do appreciate it. Uh, but finally, to all of the volunteer officials that make this event uh, happen, whether it's the event officials that look after uh, the grandstand access, the information booths, or whether it's all the Motorsport Australia volunteers uh, who are trackside in race control, in scrutineering, um, know that you're efforts are valued. Uh, I'll be there along alongside you getting up very, very early on Sunday morning uh, to help put on a safe uh, a safe and fair uh, race for the, the teams that managed to survive the Friday and Saturday. Uh, and of course, big shout out to all the uh, support category competitors as well from historic Formula Ford and combined sedans that will also be attending the event. Uh, great to see you support the event. Uh, can't wait to catch up with a lot of you up there. And what a great way to kick off the 2023 motorsports season for circuit races in Australia. I'll just echo what Dave said and just say thank heavens we've, we've finally got the, the 12 hour back on a February slot and it's kick-starting the new season. I can't wait for next week and, um, yeah, well, can't wait for next week slash this week whenever you're listening to the podcast. And it's going to be fantastic to see, um, yeah, GT3 cars roaring around the mountain once again. And, yeah, hopefully this year can be a, a stepping stone to building the event back to what it was in 2020 and, and really setting this up as a, as a great start to our Australian motorsport season and also a, a great endurance race internationally that, that teams and drivers want to be at and, and we can build this event back to what it was in 2020 once again. And going by what all three of us had in our top three, the, the, the team that we're looking at and the team that we're tipping is number 32. So good luck to them as well. 
Indeed, going to be a fascinating race, no doubt about that, and uh, definitely part of the rebuilding phase for the Bathurst 12-hour. Keep getting bigger and better from here. Big thank you to my co-analysts for the Checkered Flag Chat Bathurst 12-hour preview podcast, Dave Stilwell and Shane Jones. Look forward to seeing you trackside at the mountain this weekend.